That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. When I moved to the state of Oregon, all those years ago and started uh, writing a sports column and then eventually hosting a radio show. I used to uh, look around the state of Oregon. I used to look around the city of Portland. I used to say to myself, what kind of city does Portland want to be? What kind of sports state does Oregon want to be? And at the time, mind you, you know, you had Oregon and Oregon State football that were coming off being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. It, it, you know, it wasn't a low time in state sports history. You had the Blazers still relevant. They had the highest payroll in the NBA, 2002-2003, sitting at $120 million. The New York Knicks were second. And, uh, you know, but you, you had the idea that Portland might be in play for the Montreal Expos. And you were forgiven at the time if you thought, well, Portland's being used. Major League Baseball really wants a team in Washington, D.C. They want the Expos to be in Washington, D.C., and they just need some leverage. And it turned out to be true. Like, the Washington Nationals became a thing. Portland's hopes and dreams, uh, despite the uh, efforts of Vera Katz, who was, you know, banging the drum pretty hard for baseball to come to Portland. Uh, That's the last time I really saw city leadership get behind something in a way that made me think like, hey, this could be possible if things lined up. Today I reported at johnconzano.com that uh, the Major League Baseball to Portland effort is uh, at an interesting crossroads. I'm calling it the seventh inning stretch for Major League Baseball to Portland. I think Craig Cheek's group has got its act together. I think they've done a lot of things right. Uh, you know, in talking with Mike Barrett, Craig Cheek over the last couple of years, I think they have positioned themselves about as well as they possibly could in a landscape that includes uh, the roadblock that is the city of Portland. Now, in the last couple months, we have seen some news reports about the Lloyd Center Mall property. That property is owned by Arrow Retail. It's a Dallas-based commercial real estate firm. They get into management as well, mall management. But Arrow Retail, I reached out to them. They did not return a call seeking comment today. But they've got a reputation of being, how do I put this kindly, difficult, unrealistic, um, just tough to deal with in a potential sales situation. And I think the MLB to PDX effort, as much as it wants to be at the Lloyd Center, as much as the city of Portland would probably die for a win right now, uh, they need a victory. Uh, You know, obviously Phil Knight pumping some money into the Albina project and You have uh, the surrounding area around Moda Center that is just begging for development, and you've got the Lloyd Center. Like, if you are a visionary, you're looking at the city of Portland going, hey, this is is an easy one. This is a layup. 
develop the area around Moda Center, get the Blazers in the hands of Phil Knight and Alan Smolinski, the real estate developer who was uh, part of the co-offer for the Trailblazers uh, just a summer ago, get it into the hands of Smolinski, get it in the hands of Phil Knight, let them develop the the Rose Quarter area in a way that uh, you know people dreamed about doing years and years and years ago, and then pivot to the Lloyd Center and potential Major League Baseball ballpark there. And if you could marry these two entities together, you might really have something. You might really have a victory if you're the city of Portland. But every day the city of Portland gets up, it looks in the mirror, and it's still the city of Portland. And I do think you're going to have an obstacle in addition to the Dallas-based uh, commercial real estate firm that owns the Lloyd Center that uh, I think is going to be difficult to deal with. I think they're unrealistic in what they think the mall is worth. I think it's going to be a real challenge for the Portland Diamond Project to get its hands firmly around Lloyd Center Mall. But I think additionally there is the headache that is the city of Portland. City politics, the ticking clock, Rob Manfred, Major League Baseball. You know, I, I think it, it in everybody's mind this Vegas and Oakland A's thing has gotten very messy. And I'm glad that the city of Portland is not involved in trying to lure the A's away from Oakland. Now that I see the wreckage that is potentially going to be left in the wake of that decision by John Fisher, like I don't, I don't envy Oakland losing a team. I also don't envy Las Vegas getting the Oakland A's and John Fisher. So I'm looking at all of that thinking, gosh, maybe – there's some there's some uh, good fortune. Maybe there's a silver lining in Portland not being a relocation option and uh, Portland then becoming an expansion target when baseball does expand. Rob Manfred's going to expand. Uh, the commissioner of baseball is on record. I believe they want a team in the Pacific time zone. Portland uh, well-positioned on that front. I think you're going to get some opposition maybe from the Bay Area. I think San Jose, Santa Clara, if they could get the territorial rights lifted, from the San Francisco Giants in the South Bay, they could come up with an effort that could be a formidable, um, uh, you know, piece of uh, opposition for Portland. But uh, beyond that, I think Portland is sitting in a good spot. I don't even think the Salt Lake City bid, you know, really does check the boxes for baseball. Because if I'm Rob Manfred, I need the Pacific Time Zone. I want one of the teams, the expansion teams, to be in the West. And I think Portland has has got an opportunity there. But looking at the Lloyd Center Mall project, and the more I poke around it and the more I learn about aero retail in Dallas, the more I un- understand that I think it's going to be really challenging for the Diamond Project to get a good deal on that piece of property, get fair market value for it. So I think what's going to happen is aero retail is going to sit and squat on Lloyd Center until they get somebody willing to come in and overpay for it. And I don't think the baseball effort's going to do that. I further think that the baseball effort has dealt enough with city politics, enough with the ticking clock, and knows it's in the seventh inning. And so for those reasons, I think the MLB to PDX effort needs to look closer at the suburbs. Now, I'm not saying where. I'm not saying, you know, that you, you have to be in Wilsonville or Beaverton or Tigard or Oregon City or Milwaukee. I, I just think you need to be in the Portland metropolitan area somewhere. And, you know, it was once said by one of the principals of the Diamond Project that, you know, you could be in Portland or you could hit your baseballs into Portland. 
seemingly going, uh, your home run balls fly into the uh, city limits of Portland, but your stadium isn't actually there. So you have to, uh, you don't have to deal with the politics and the, and the red tape and the bureaucracy and everything that's going to come with that. It'll be interesting to see what the Diamond Project does here, but I do think they're in the seventh inning. And I had a really interesting tidbit fall into my lap in the last couple weeks, and I have worked hard to get a second source on this, and I got it today. But the original charter investors who were part of the original Portland Diamond Project, I'm talking about Russell Wilson, his wife Sierra. I'm talking about Harvey Platt, the retired CEO of Platt Electric, and his wife Sandy. Darwin Barney, um, Samantha Richardson, a philanthropist in the area, uh, Portland Gears uh, CEO, Marcus Harvey. Um, you've got uh, Mark Allen at Nike. You've got uh, the Javo founder and entrepreneur, Tyler Williams. you got a bunch of people in the state of Oregon who have poured their own money in to be charter investors, and I think they invested somewhere between $250,000 and $5 million each. So it was a pretty wide range. But you get a picture of what Russell Wilson and Sierra and Harvey Platt and his wife Sandy might have done, and then maybe there's some different tiers here. But I am told by multiple sources that the original charter investors were approached by an outside investor who was described to me as a whale. Okay, this is one person. This person offered to buy out the charter investors at their original investment level plus interest. That's interesting to me. I find that interesting, that a whale would slide in, offer buyouts on that front in the seventh inning here. Somebody wants this thing for themselves. They want the whole thing for themselves. So somebody is seeing that there is a development play or a potential reality to the expansion or somebody maybe who's in another market is hedging their bet maybe. I don't know. I have not uh, confirmed the identity of the whale, but I know that it is somebody who is sliding in and saying to the original investors, who may be at the point where, like, a lot of people are, where they're looking at the politics, they're looking at, you know, hey, there's been several starts and stops, um, looking at the reality that, you know, what are the percentages that Major League Baseball actually pivots to Portland? What are the what are the odds that this group can actually get its hands on a parcel of land that makes sense for a stadium. They want to develop an entertainment district around it, much like uh, the, uh, the, uh, you know, they did in, uh, outside of Atlanta. They're not in the heart of Atlanta, the Braves, anymore. You know, I, I went and saw their stadium when I was there for the Oregon-Georgia game, and, uh, you know, they did a fantastic job, uh, you know, sort of taking care of this, uh, you know, this ballpark and this entertainment district and turning it into a, just a tremendous uh, opportunity for growth and revenue and, you know, a, a source of pride, revitalization and pride in, a, in the city of Atlanta. And they did it outside the city of Atlanta. They're still the Atlanta Braves. But somebody out there wants this thing all for themselves. Now, maybe it's somebody like Jensen Huang, who is the uh, founder and the CEO of NVIDIA. He has been uh, he's a big Oregon State fan. He's got ties to the state of Oregon. I don't know. I've reached out to NVIDIA to try to get a comment from him uh, and see if maybe he is the guy. You know, maybe it is uh, somebody like Alan Smolinski, who was part of the Phil Knight offer. Now, Smolinski's a co-owner of the Dodgers, but maybe he wants his own team. Maybe he wants something for himself. Uh, you know, maybe it's uh, Wes Edens, the Oregon State grad and now uh, owner, majority owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. 
Maybe he's going, you know what, I'd like to get into the MLB business. This is kind of fun. Um, I don't know at this point. But I find it interesting that somebody's kicking the tires. I want you to tell me, where should they put this stadium? Where should the Diamond Project be looking? How optimistic are you that they could get something done? And, I, and are you as intrigued as I am by the notion that some whale investor out there is suddenly seeing opportunity where a lot of us were going, oh, is this really going to go anywhere? Somebody else is going, oh, I would like to come in and I'll buy you out your original investment plus interest. I don't know how many of the charter investors are going to take that offer, but I think it's a really interesting offer. 503-417-7575. Feels like baseball is alive. Judah Newby's in studio. Steven's out today. Judah, what's your read on this? Like some, some whale investors coming out of left field, so to speak, and is interested in, in being part of this. That's really, really exciting. And uh, I, congrats on getting the scoop. I'm, uh, I'm pumped for the Diamond Project just because it feels like it needs the muscle of a whale to get this thing over the finish line. Um, you know, whether it's city politics or just the, uh, the, the issues coming out of COVID or the funding at large, or you named the number of big name investors. Like I even think of Russell and Sierra. Do they really care the way that they said that they cared a few years ago about bringing baseball to the city of Portland now that they're no longer in the Pacific Northwest? Um, obviously, I know Russell and Craig are close, but still, I, I think the point stands. I'm intrigued by all those names that you listed. I will confess, because I'm naive that way, that I thought of Phil Knight first. That doesn't could, make any sense, does it, Phil? Could be, though. Okay. He's never he's never shown interest in Major League Baseball. He's shown a lot of interest in the NBA, but... You know, for a lot of years when he was involved, more involved at Nike, the prevailing thought was, why own one team when you can own them all, right? So he was, he was on, you know, he owned the NBA. And I know he's close with Adam Silver, but he just seems far more interested in, the, in college football and the NBA than he does in baseball. And I know they did approach him. The Diamond Group did approach him initially. They approached, he, they approached Phil Knight. They approached Merritt Paulson. And they kind of got put off by both of them. And I think at the time, maybe the timing just wasn't right for both of them for different reasons. But, you know, Phil Knight's not a bad answer. Maybe he has determined he can't really do what he wants to do with the Blazers in the short term. Maybe it's a legacy play. I don't know. The Smolinski link, I think, is similarly fascinating because if the Blazers are going to take a long time and Jody's going to just sit on it and collect her management fee, then maybe Smolinski says, well, look, I can get up into Portland first with baseball where I already have um, proof of performance with positive ownership with the Dodgers, and any real estate problems I'm uniquely positioned to solve. I'm Alan Smolinski. This is what I do. Um, because, again, when you think of where to put the stadium, John, I confess, I, I get caught up in the weeds. Where? Where do you do it, even if it is in the suburbs? like I, I can't figure that one out, but I think Alan Smolinski could, and there's definitely enough brain power you know, in this market that wants to see baseball come to this city that could solve that question as well. And maybe Smolinski getting in on the ground floor with this would maybe grease the wheels a little bit for possible Rip City ownership down the road. Is is that too ambitious to take? You know, I, I don't think it I, I don't think it is too ambitious. And I think if you're all right, let's just put yourself in the shoes of Smolinski. He is co owner of the Dodgers. He's not the majority owner. He's just got some money in the Dodgers. He is a developer in his heart. He made his money as a student at USC, bought up some student housing, made money on it, turned around, bought more student housing. He's now, uh, he very quickly became the largest landowner around the USC campus. He got in, this, in the housing business, 
and development business, and he's become a billionaire there. Maybe he wants his own thing, and you know, maybe he's now put in the work looking at the Blazers, looking at um, you know the development opportunities around Moda Center. Maybe Smolinski is saying, hey, wait a minute. If I can't get the Blazers now, I, I can corner Portland anyway by getting uh, a baseball team there, and I'll add the Blazers later. Like Maybe that's where his head is. I don't know, but it's really interesting to me, and I find that this is, you know, I, I, I've always been, you're a baseball guy, Judah, right? Like, you love yeah, baseball. Love I love it. baseball. Yeah. And so when I think about MLB to PDX, I think about your family on a Saturday or Sunday at the ballpark. I think about my family and my kids being able to grow up going to baseball games. And I think about a lot of families in the Portland metropolitan area that I think would enjoy MLB and, and see that. But it has been hard in the last couple of years in watching what has happened to downtown Portland and the city leadership, I, not just in the last couple of years, but it's been like 20 years of watching just, you know, no enthusiasm for sports and a difficulty to get anything done other than like bike lanes and a tram. And so <laughs> I I am left with a little feeling a little flat about it until a day like today where I go, OK, wait a minute, let's put the pieces together here. Somebody's somebody, somebody who with a pile of money sees something that the rest of us don't. And I find that very interesting. And, you know, look, I, I, I'll commend, like, there's a lot of naysayers out there that are taking shots at the Diamond Project, you know, saying, oh, what have they done? Printed T-shirts, put an option on land. I think if you uh, look at, you know, I think it's very easy for people sitting back who are doing nothing to look at people who are dreaming big and making big plans and, and take shots at them. I mean, it's all over the sports world if you think about it. Like, you know, even the people that are looking at uh, the Pac-12 conference nationally, or it's very easy to take shots when you don't know what is going on behind the scenes. But I think they've done a lot of the legwork that it's important legwork. They position themselves the best they can, and they're I think they're dealing with uh, you know some ineffective leadership in you know in the last four or five, six, seven years at City Hall in Portland, and uh, a state that you know isn't falling all over itself to to help with public funds to build a stadium, and so. I think they're going to have to look outside the city of Portland. I think they're going to have to go to the Burbs if they want to get it done or they want to be a player in this. And the fact that, you know, if that were all it was, Judah, maybe I would be left going, well, this isn't going to happen. But then I see and hear that somebody is coming in trying to buy out the charter investors. And there's no reason to do that unless that whale has their eyes also on the franchise, not just a development play. And that's been the missing piece in Portland. Like, who would own the team? has been the missing piece. I have a big smile on my face just listening to you say that because that that might be the missing piece, John, and that might be the only path forward, frankly. like It, it almost feels like it needs a savior. It needs a singular heroic figure to finish this job. Um, not to say that the city doesn't have it in it to maybe put together a collective effort or you know the current constitution of the Portland Diamond Project. I think they can do it. But ultimately, the best chance to land a big league team here is for someone with exceptional muscle and probably an individual figure with the funds that you're talking about that can buy out the Portland Diamond Project uh, members. How do you put it? That they're buying out the 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 members, charter of the, members, the, the charter, charter members, because they did what they offered as they set up the structure. The best I uh, my best understanding of it is there were charter investors who gave the seed money for 
the feasibility studies, uh, the hiring of an architectural firm. They went out and hired the best firm out of Kansas City that does all those great ballparks. Um, the option on land, having a headquarters. There's just some overhead when you launch this kind of effort that that needs funding. And uh, and I don't know the total amount that they raised, but I think it is somewhere between five and ten million dollars between like 20 investors that put money in and I think the minimum investment was about two hundred fifty thousand and so I think uh, those charter investors you you know were given in you know the opportunity to be part of this group but with the understanding that there was going to be a second and a third round of investment where somebody you know obviously if they're going to develop a ballpark we're talking about you know what is it one point three you know you know, billion dollars or something like that to, you know, whatever you're build, spending on building a ballpark and attracting a major league baseball team. Like the whole, the whole, uh, you know, the whole uh, lift of this thing is not going to be easy. But I think, um, you know, I've always struggled with who's going to own the team. Like, is it just going to be somebody who comes in from the outside? But uh, all of a sudden, uh, I guess we know somebody's interested. I think that's that's uh, fascinating to me that the charter investors are being targeted by somebody. I was told it was a whale. I was not given a name. But I did talk to several of the charter investors who say that they are weighing their decision, uh, trying to figure out if they want to be bought out or not. And all of a sudden, if I were a charter investor, I might have gone from, yeah, I'd like to get my money back, to, well, wait a minute. Like, what is going on here? Like, who's interested in this? Um, leave it here. We got a great show for you today. Ben Golliver, Washington Post NBA writer, is next. He's going to talk about Damian Lillard, Aaron Goodwin, and the meeting that they had, Camp Lillard, with Joe Cronin, the Blazers GM. What does it signal? Can we fill in the blanks? Ben Golliver next. Well, the Portland Trail Blazers and Damian Lillard stand at a fork in the road, so to speak lot of discussion about what's best for Lillard, what's best for the franchise, and the answer for those two things, uh, at least in the last couple of weeks, has not been largely the same. Damian Lillard and his agent, Aaron Goodwin, reportedly met with Blazers GM Joe Cronin yesterday, here to talk about that and a whole bunch of other stuff. Ben Golliver, national NBA reporter at the Washington Post, friend of the show, Ben Golliver, joining us. Uh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, John. I, I take it Damian Lillard's keeping you pretty busy, isn't he? Yeah, it's a lot of discussion, a lot of round and round. Hard to kind of interpret what it all means. That's why we're bringing you in, because I think the view from 20,000 feet might give us some clarity. Like, what do you, what do you think when you see all the, you know, the talk and the, uh, the uh, messages that are sent through media members and, hey, agent and uh, player are meeting with the GM? You know, how do you read that, Ben? Well, there's a number of reasons why they could have uh, met with Joe Cronin this week. I think obviously the one people were kind of anticipating or maybe covering their eyes and worried about was like an immediate trade request, which would immediately put Portland like right at the center of the entire free agency universe uh, before the free agency period opens on Friday. Doesn't sound like that happened. But, you know, if you're Lillard, you have a few questions you want answered. I mean, number one. Uh, there were no trades uh, on draft day or draft week, so why not? Why did you go ahead and pick three young guys? I think you would like to hear the organization's rationale there. I think, number two, you'd probably like to get a sense for how does Joe Cronin view uh, Scoot Henderson and Damian Lillard either playing together or kind of working side by side because obviously they're in very different stages of their career 
on a very different timelines. And then I think really what you would want to do is, is make it clear if you're Lillard, like, hey, I want some real help. I want to have a chance next year. Who are your targets, uh, whether it's free agency or trades? What kind of moves are on the table? Let's talk about who, who, you know, who we could potentially bring in here to Portland and just to let Portland know, apply a little pressure. You know, take a page out of LeBron James's book and say, hey, I want some help. Let's go ahead and do this. Let's just not, like, turn this into a – a youth movement. Otherwise, it doesn't really make sense for him to stick around, right? So Portland's got some decisions uh, on a guy like Jeremy Grant. You know, how much do you pay him? Uh, do you pay him, right? And then they also have a, a player in Anthony Simons who, to me, kind of feels like the odd man out if they keep Lillard and already have Scoot. I mean, how many small guards uh, who are offensive-oriented and need to have the ball in their hands do you really need on the same team, right? So these are the kinds of questions you would want to discuss if you're still on the same page with the organization and you decided not to issue a trade request. Ben Golliver with us, Washington Post. Uh, the, the rumors immediately begin flying today. Uh, I've got people messaging me going, uh, you know, Draymond Green's in Portland. Damian Lillard has rented out El Gaucho and bought the restaurant <laughs> out. And, you know, give us an idea of if the organization, let's just say in that meeting, Damian Lillard said to Joe Cronin, as a show of faith, Find me one piece, one guy that shows me we're taking a step towards building while also nurturing these young guys. Is there a player in your mind that could be had or feels like uh, would be interested in playing alongside Lillard? Well, I think, first of all, I would say I don't think Portland is one piece away, right? I mean, maybe they're one piece away from being a playoff team and, you know, having uh, much more to play for than they've had these past two years where they kind of shut it down early and, Nobody really had a great time, but I don't think that they're one piece away. And I think if you're Joe Cronin, you're much better off being honest with the state of your roster and saying a lot of our uh, most intriguing assets are really young. We should be trying to keep the pressure off these guys. They don't need to go out there and try to have a 50-win season, Shade and Sharp and, and Scoot Henderson. That's not realistic. So I think that's important, and you should be honest to yourself and honest to Damian Lillard, too, when you're talking about that. The other factor Portland's got to worry about is how many great trade ships do they really have? Uh, I think if you're looking at their guys, I mean, Shaded Sharp, uh, you know, maybe uh, Anthony Simons, there'd be some interest there around the league. I don't think Anthony Simons with his contract is actually getting you all that much by himself. And you look at players like Nurkic, I mean, at this stage of his career, he doesn't really have a ton of value. So they're kind of limited on the, the type of capital you would need to go and make a, a big swing deal um, at the same time, you know, the, the way these new collective bargaining agreement rules are being set up by the NBA, it actually favors teams like Portland that have felt like they've been on the outside looking in for a while. This is not going to be a super team league anymore if you go forward for the next five years. This is going to be a king of the mountain type league. In other words, whichever superstar plays the best in any single given year, sort of like a Nikola Jokic who wins the title last year without having any other all-star players around him, that's who's going to go home with the rings and the championship and the valor and the glory and all that. It's not going to be like Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond all on the same team just obliterating the field, right? Because they've changed the rules, it's going to have a leveling effect uh, across the entire league. So if I was Joe Cronin, that would have been part of my message this week too. It's like, hey, Damian Lillard, look, we understand – uh, we're kind of uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place with this roster, but your chance to compete next year, it's not going to be as hard as you think it is because a lot of these teams are shedding talent. Look at Golden State. They had to give away Jordan Poole because they couldn't afford to pay him that long-term contract, 
and also take care of their other business, uh, you know, uh, if it's, you know, repaying Draymond Green or, or, you know, bring it back Clay Thompson at some point down the road. Same thing with Boston. They wind up losing Marcus Smart, a huge player for the Boston Celtics last year, and now their depth has been compromised. Uh, you know, we saw Atlanta have to give away John Collins this week because they didn't feel like they could pay everybody. So what you're going to get is a, a more level playing field, a more any given Sunday type of vibe. And so I think that that's why you want to tell Damian Lillard, hey, look, man, we're going to go as far as you take us. If you go out there and have an MVP type season, this landscape is going to be more level and you're going to have a shot to get back in the playoffs and do something. We don't have to hit this huge home run this summer because the NBA changed the rules. Now, whether he agrees with that or if he would prefer to go play in, you know, Miami or Brooklyn, I mean, that's kind of out of your hands. But I think that should be part of the pitch if you're the Portland Trailblazers. You break up if he would prefer to go play. And Miami has come up. And, you know, I get hung up on that, Ben, because I think, you know, if I'm whispering in the ear of Joe Cronin, I'm telling Joe Cronin, hey, err on the side of doing what's right for the Blazers, not what's right for Damian Lillard. But this league is so player-driven, and you know it, you're in it. Why don't teams more often do what's best for themselves? What danger does Portland have going down the road saying, we are just, we're in a rebuild and we're not ready to trade you, Dame? Well, there's short-term damage and there's long-term damage, right? So short-term damage is you've got an unhappy superstar-level player who doesn't want to be there, who creates a distraction over the rest of your team, who, you know, maybe he shows up to training camp, maybe he doesn't. You have to go through that whole song and dance like Philadelphia did with Ben Simmons. And you just, uh, it sets the entire tenor for your organization. It's very difficult to sell season tickets and to get people to tune into your games and to get people excited about your franchise when you're kind of in this open war with your star player, your franchise-level player. That's why you saw Washington, uh, you know, last week move very quickly just to trade Bradley Beal. They got pennies on the dollar, really, because they didn't want to be stuck in that type of limbo if he wanted to go somewhere and they, they didn't want to trade him there. Now, the advantage for Portland, though, is, you know, Damian Lillard doesn't have a no-trade clause. They should be able to get a real market opened up. They should be able to get even like a bidding war going for Damian Lillard because he's an all-NBA level player, you know, an all-star many, many times over. Uh, he'd be a perfect fit in Miami in terms of what they were missing during the playoffs, and that's why that team comes up so much because they just needed more punch in their backcourt. They needed somebody else to uh, relieve the pressure off of a, a Jimmy Butler and a Bam Adebayo offensively. But I think you're, you're exactly right. Joe Cronin has to do what's best for the Blazers. And to this point, he has. Taking Scoot Henderson with the number three pick and not trading that pick and bringing in a guy who could be a franchise-level player, that was a move that was absolutely in the best interest of the Portland Trail Blazers and not in the best interest of Damian Lillard. So give Cronin uh, credit for some real backbone on that one. You know, honestly, it's kind of an easy pick. You know, Scoot fell in their lap. Michael Jordan was out to lunch. He took Brandon Miller. That's fine. You know, his mistake is going to be your gain. And I do think that's sort of the, the short-term damage aspect. The longer-term damage is, you know, obviously there's only a certain number of agents in the league. Star players do talk. If you don't treat your players well, especially your high-profile players, that can, uh, you know, potentially, you know, create issues with agents where, okay, maybe they don't want to work with you as much or maybe they're going to steer clients elsewhere. And you've got to kind of protect your long-term reputation as well if you're a front office. So those are some of the other reasons why teams tend to, uh, you know, follow their players' interests, you know, if there is a trade request, uh, because they realize, look, it's just kind of a road to nowhere, and it can get really, really ugly uh, if you stand too firm. Does the Blazers' ownership uh, conundrum 
with a trustee running the franchise, factor it all in your mind into, you know, ultimately standing in this fork in the road and, you know, does not having an owner to, to issue a directive, is that a problem? Oh, a hundred percent, you know, and, and here, first things first, I've been pretty hard on Jody Allen on your show over the years. Let's give her credit for the G League team name, Rip City Remix. I got a t-shirt, John. I mean, it looks awesome. Great logo. She nailed it. So good job. I understand she's taking credit for that name, so I'm going to give it to her. Uh, <laughs> but look, I mean, there's a lot more, uh, you know, to running a successful NBA organization at the highest level than just that. You've got to be, have a, a public personality. She should be on your show taking questions regularly. I'm not saying every single month, but there should be a state of, of the union, sort of like Paul Allen used to do. She should be in the meetings with Damian Lillard. Uh, you know, it shouldn't just be the front office. She should be a regular uh, participant in that. She should have been at the pre-draft workouts, every single one of those. She should be whining and dining the players getting a sense for their personalities. She should be doing all the things that her brother did, you know, who was really a cutting-edge owner kind of before his time, ahead of his time, uh, you know, in terms of how much he was spending and how involved he was uh, over the course of his entire ownership tenure. And I think that when you're looking at the teams that are the most successful in the NBA, it's committed ownership groups, it's stable ownership groups. The Miami Heat fall into that category. The Boston Celtics fall into that category. The Golden State Warriors fall into that category. And those are just some of the teams that have had success here recently. I mean, even the Denver Nuggets, who really haven't been huge spenders, you know, over the course of the last, say, 10 or 15 years, they have had stability. They've stuck with their coach. They've stuck with their front office uh, until uh, Tim Connolly left for Minnesota, but they kept a level of continuity after he left. Uh, they are the ones who steer the ship. And sometimes, you know, if you're a franchise-level player like Damian Lillard, who's the CEO uh, pretty much of Lillard, Inc., right, his own company, a lot of times you want to talk eye-to-eye with the people who are cutting the checks and, and making the big decisions. And, uh, you know, to me, I, I think that when you're surveying, you know, 30 ownership groups around the league, I don't think too many people are putting, uh, you know, Jody Allen in the top tier. Ben Golliver, Washington Post, is with us. I looked at the Nuggets. I was happy for the Nuggets, especially – happy looking at a team that I felt was built the right way. But what you can see in Denver's success is that there were incremental steps. And I think you've touched on that in this interview, that the Blazers aren't one signing away from mattering, right? Maybe they're one signing away from sending a message to Damian Lillard, like, hey, we're going to put someone with you so you're not alone in this this season as a veteran player. But what what can we learn? Can we learn something from the Nuggets, or is it so hard to draft a Nikola Jokic? Well, first of all, that's a great question. I got two answers for you. First of all, it's absolutely about patience. That's what Michael Malone was preaching coming out of the finals, this idea of, like, you know, Jamal Murray has a knee injury. They have to wait for 18 months. And what they did during that 18-month time period, they didn't blow it up. They didn't shed salaries. They didn't go the other direction. They didn't consider trading Jamal Murray. They made calculated moves, bringing like Aaron Gordon in, bringing Contavious Caldwell Pope in, uh, bringing in Bruce Brown, all these guys who wound up playing very important roles on that title team. A similar thing with Michael Porter Jr. This guy had three back surgeries. He missed tons of time uh, for Denver, and yet they stayed the course with him, and he played some pretty important minutes for them in the postseason as well. So they knew they had the franchise player in Jokic. They knew they had the sidekick in Murray. And it was all about the deliberate uh, piecing together 
of the rest of that starting lineup and rotation to put those guys in a position where they're going to be able to win consistently, finding guys who have the right chemistry, the right personality, who can win together and doing it. I mean, there's there's just no way you can, uh, you know, fast forward that. As you know, Kevin Pritchard used to always say, like, let the cake bake, right? I mean, that, that's a real deal, and that's something you're going to see, I think, even for a team like San Antonio, bringing in Victor Wembanyama, who you know, is this 19-year-old prospect. He's going to own the world. I promise you San Antonio is going to take that thing nice and slow. They're not going to rush it. They're not going to make crazy rash decisions. Uh, they're going to go bit by bit until they build him up into a, you know, a player who can lead a, a title team. Now, the other lesson, and I think this is a really big one, is that Nikola Jokic never wants the credit and always puts his team first. I think he epitomizes leadership in the NBA right now better than anybody except for maybe Steph Curry. He's right there on that elite level uh, with the Steph Curry, with the Giannis in terms of his personality. He would get awkward during these post-game press conferences. He'd go out there and have triple doubles, John, and he would say, oh, it's all about my teammates. And people would say, are you the best player on the court? He wouldn't even want to admit that he's the best player on the court. That's how shy and deferential this guy was towards his teammates. But that sets an incredible attitude of, you know, especially in a smaller market, of guys who say, hey, our best player trusts us. Our best player empowers us. This is a guy who's going to feed me the ball when I'm open. He's going to make sure I'm set up for success. He's going to find me, uh, you know, on the three-point arc for the, the drive and kick passes, right? And th- that's really at the center of Denver's success. And I look at Damian Lillard here over the last month, and this is not all his fault because, yes, the team's been stuck and they've kind of been spinning their wheels here over the last couple of years. I understand why he's frustrated. I understand why he thinks, you know, hey, the clock's ticking here a little bit. But where's the tweet that says, hey, Scoot Henderson, welcome to Portland. I'm so excited to play with you, right? Where's the, where's the retweet of the graphics of Scoot and Dame? I'm sure Blazers fans are putting those graphics out there on social media. Where's the welcome wagon for a guy in Scoot who, I mean, this guy graduated high school early so he could go play in the G League for two years, did nothing but grind his way uh, you know, towards becoming a lottery pick. Reminds me an awful lot of a guy like Damian Lillard who put a lot of time in in Weaver State. These guys surely have things to bond about. There's been some reports that they've been in communication uh, as well. But where is the, you know, where's the leadership factor? Who's helping Scoot Anderson get comfortable in Portland? I was there in New York, you know, and I interviewed uh, Scoot as part of this big group, and a lot of the questions were about, do you think you can play with Damian Lillard? Uh, you know, are you ready to go right now because Dame wants to win? Can you be a part of a winning team right now? And I'll tell you what, for a teenage player, this guy handled himself brilliantly. He answered all the questions directly, honestly. He talked about all the preparation he's put into his game. He, uh, he opened with open arms, you know, the idea of, of playing alongside Damian Lillard. He did his part. And now I'm looking at the guy who's going to be making $60 million in a couple of years and saying, well, where's the leadership? You know, where's welcoming these rookies onto the team? Uh, why are you meeting with the front office and kind of casting this cloud over the entire organization? Why aren't you welcoming your new teammates in it, at least, um, you know, trying to help them get settled and comfortable in Portland? I wish that was an aspect to this story that we could talk about. And unfortunately, it's just been very quiet on that front, John. I think that's a shortcoming. And, again, you just ask yourself, look, if it's going to be a king of the mountain NBA where it's the best player uh, who's getting the most out of his teammates who's going to wind up winning these titles, you have to ask yourself, is Damian Lillard on that level as a player? And then are there other guys out, right, out there right now who are getting more out of their teammates than he is? Excellent point. Ben Goliver. All right, before I cut you loose, 
Um, just your gut feeling, is Damian Lillard on the court in minute one of the Trailblazers season in a Blazers uniform? Well, it, it's really tricky, man. Uh, it's not a simple answer. I would say, first of all, my expectations are relatively low, relatively modest for what Portland can do in terms of trading for talent to really help Damian Lillard in the short term. And so it, it puts it all on, on his court. Now, if he wants to go ahead and let's say he's not impressed with the moves that are made or nothing great materializes and he does issue that trade request, then I think it's definitely in Portland's best interest to get the best return that they can for him this summer and move forward with the youth movement, right? So I, that's why I do think a lot of this just comes down to what can Joe Cronin do here in the next seven to 10 days to kind of make his pitch to Damian Lillard. But uh, to me, you don't want a guy who's not all in coming back. And so I think uh, after free agency, there should be another meeting between Damian Lillard and Joe Cronin where they say, hey, man, look, like we got we to gotta make sure we're still on the same page. We did the best we can. We're paying you an awful lot of money. you got to buckle up and, and get back in here and do it. And I actually think it would be pretty entertaining to watch Dame and Scoot and, and yes. Shaden Sharp and some of these other guys play. I don't think that's like the worst thing in the world. And so, um, again, that's why I'm disappointed. I would just like to see some level of optimism from the face of the franchise, right? Of like, hey, come on. Like, we got some real young talent, some guys who are going to go out there and play hard. I promise you this, John, and hold me to this. Scoot Anderson is going to give you absolutely everything he's got next year, every night. That's the kind of guy he is. He's got that workhorse mentality, that dog mentality, and it's going to be really, really fun to watch. And I think that that's a, a strong reason Damian Lillard should want to be around it and have a, a courtside seat for that. Ben Golliver, Washington Post. You're the best, Ben. Uh, thank you, and I appreciate you. All right, man. Take care. Good stuff from Golliver. Let's dissect it. I want your calls on that. What did you hear there? What do you think about minute one of next season? 503-417-7575. Ben Golliver, Washington Post, spitting truth on this show, among other things, talking about why Damian Lillard did not show support for Scoot Henderson after the draft. I understand why he's frustrated. I understand why he thinks, you know, hey, the clock's ticking here a little bit. But where's the tweet that says, hey, Scoot Henderson, welcome to Portland. I'm so excited to play with you, right? Where's the... But where's the retweet of the graphics of Scoot and Dame? I'm sure Blazers fans are putting those graphics out there on social media. Where's the welcome wagon for a guy in Scoot who, I mean, this guy graduated high school early so he could go play in the G League for two years, did nothing but grind his way, uh, you know, towards becoming a lottery pick. Reminds me an awful lot of a guy like Damian Lillard who put a lot of time in in Weaver State. These guys surely have things to bond about. There's been some reports that they've been in communication uh, as well but where is the, you know, where's the leadership factor? Who's helping Scoot Anderson get comfortable in Portland? If you missed any of that interview with Ben Golliver, go back and grab it. But I thought he made great points about Portland needing to do what's right for itself, how the, what, what we can all learn from the Denver Nuggets, great insight there. And ultimately, a summer that will be spent, I think uh, I agree with Golliver on, the, on what can the Blazers do. I think there are some small things they can do. But, you know, let's just say hypothetically if Damian Lillard and Aaron Goodwin said to Joe Cronin in this meeting, hey, look, we still we want to be here. Uh, Dame loves being here. He wants a puncher's chance to win big. Um, you know, what can you give us as a show of good faith? Uh, and Joe Cronin said, hey, give me this free agent signing period. Let me see if I can, you know, assemble a couple of players that make Damian Lillard see the light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe uh, – 
maybe that is enough to keep Lillard here. But otherwise, maybe the Blazers are having to pivot and look at life after Damian Lillard. Uh, Brian Windhorst, ESPN, talked about the meeting as well. Um, what does this meeting do? Well, this was the meeting that a lot of the league was watching to see if Damian Lillard requested a trade, and he absolutely did not. In fact, from what I understand, the tenor of the meeting was that he doesn't want to put pressure on the seven, on the uh, six on the Blazers. Uh, that he wants to see what they do in free agency, and he's going to give them that time to do that. So, this is an interesting strategy move. He said at the end of the season, "Get me veterans." The draft came and went. No veterans. He is not. He's still not pressing, from what I have been told. That he is still going to give the Blazers every opportunity to work through this free agency process this week, whether it's through trades or signing players. There is Brian Windhorst talking about the Blazers. Uh, we'll kick it around later in the show as part of Punch It Audio, but I think this is the soap opera that is going to go on through June, through July, into July, mid-July as the free agent signing period happens, and uh, keep your eyes on the next couple of few weeks. It brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Well, LSU got it done. They got to dogpile after clobbering Florida 18-4 Monday night in Omaha. They won the Men's College World Series. If you're an Oregon State fan, uh, do you feel better about this? The Beavers, I think, have to feel a little bit better about getting knocked out of the postseason by the eventual national title winner. Uh, a lot of Oregon State fans were upset after watching Oregon State run out of pitching in the Baton Rouge Regional, gave up 19 hits and 13 runs in the elimination game. But LSU knocked him out, then went on to win it all. kind of think if you are Mitch Canham, you have to feel a tiny bit better about getting knocked out. Uh, Oregon State will be back next season in the postseason and be a year older and maybe a year better. But so much of the transfer portal and pitching, that's what baseball is becoming and has become. LSU's the title winner. I've been hearing a lot of people talk about Wyndham Clark like uh, he came out of nowhere to win the U.S. Open. And I guess he did. Like by golf standards, 29-year-old guy who had uh, one career win on the PGA Tour, ends up shooting a 70 in the final round of the U.S. Open, good enough to hold off Rory McIlroy and Scotty Scheffler and, and win a major. Terrific story. Wyndham Clark, great story, right? After the victory, Wyndham Clark credited Oregon golf coach Casey Martin, among others, for helping him turn the corner. That was his college coach at Oregon. He had gone to Oklahoma State out of high school, transferred to Eugene after the death of his mother to breast cancer. And I have been eager to hear the backstory or maybe some of the behind-the-scenes story from Casey Martin, the golf coach at the University of Oregon. He's been kind enough to join us to talk about it. I have to think that that was an absolute thrill. Coach, thanks for making time for us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Give me an idea from your standpoint. I mean, you, you know I mean, you... Wyndham is a kid and, uh, you know, watched him grow in your program, and all of a sudden you see him on that stage. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, it was fairly surreal just to see at that biggest stage a player that you knew was ready for it um, in the sense of talent and preparation, but – Still, it's the U.S. Open. It's not the uh, 
just a, a run-of-the-mill event. And, and to see how he handled it, he, he's obviously made incredible jump maturation. Um, and just to see him out there with my good buddy John Ellis, who's caddying for him, um, is, is just really satisfying and rewarding to just play whatever small role. And my role is small. Um, um, but I, I got to spend a year of my life with Wyndham and, and watch and observe and and it's just really special, you know. I'm I'm tearing up on the last hole as that putt and when they're hugging because I know all that's gone in behind it. So really cool uh, for me to be able to experience that. Yeah, when you uh, you know, when you're watching him in the opening round, he has a brilliant opening round, and all of a sudden he's in this thing. I mean, you had to be um, kind of you know, you know him as a player, and you know that you know as a, as college kids, kids can be up and down. But was there something about Wyndham in his time at Oregon that made you feel like, hey, he can sustain, he's ready for this? You know, I think when he was at Oregon, he probably wasn't ready for this stage, but he you could tell from a talent perspective he would get there. Um, he's got a complete game. And um, what I mean by that is he's incredibly long. He's freakishly long. And, and yet he's got a short game that can rival anybody. And so when you have those two sides of it it's it's pretty uh, tantalizing you know when you're a coach watching this going this kid has got it all um what he probably was lacking younger was just that that emotional maturity because he'd been through a lot the way he's geared you know he's really intense and and he kind of would beat himself up and so he's had to grow through that i know that's been a big thing uh for him but you you see him trend you know he got out there pretty quick you know through the corn ferry and then had been competitive on the tour and in the last six or eight months, something clicked. And I think we know what that is. He's been working with a psychologist that's kind of unlocked the door for him. But um, you saw it click. I mean, he's made like 14 to 15 cuts and then one in, in North Carolina um, had just made a ton of money. And then I think when he won, I think that validated him. I think it took a ton of pressure off him. Um, and then he kind of, you know, just – played free at the open and 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 it was just like you said incredibly satisfying and and rewarding for not only me but all all duck fans everywhere to be able to get to see that casey martin with us university of oregon men's golf coach uh you know i uh, you mentioned ellis uh the caddy your former assistant coach at oregon and you know the relationship that they had as a as a player and a coach at oregon obviously carrying forward so valuable to have, you know, essentially an assistant coach with you on the course as a caddy. Absolutely. John, the story behind Wyndham, there's a few people that are that have played huge roles in his life, and, and John is absolutely one of them. And the other couple is, is Jeff and Jamie Gaskell from Eugene um, that are like a second family to him. Um, but John played at Oregon, played for Coach Nosler, was, um, uh, I think, twice all Pac-10 first team, great player, never made it. Played in a couple Opens, won some Cal State Opens and stuff, but never made it on the tour, and he could have. He's talented enough. Um, And when his career was kind of winding down, we had been chatting for years about him wanting to get into coaching business and finally worked out and so I had I had him as his first year coaching, um, and happened to be when Wyndham transferred in, and, and so just to watch their um, partnership, their friendship grow throughout the year, uh, John nailed it. He was unbelievable um, because his personality. He was able to to tease Wyndham and kind of deflect some of the tension that Wyndham would carry, and he instead of just making it heavy, he would tease him about it. And I remember in a lot of our team meetings and stuff, he'd crack jokes, and you couldn't help but laugh, and Wyndham couldn't help but laugh at himself a little bit and it just took all the edge off and allowed Wyndham to just 
play play better because he wasn't just wasn't so heavy. John was such a big part of that, and I think that's why they hit it off. And I know John um, obviously ended up working for him shortly thereafter, and they've been together ever since. And and um, it's really special to me that that is a special part that I got to play a role in kind of putting those two together. You know, that's fascinating. And you also mentioned sort of the surrogate family. I know that Wyndham lost his mother to breast cancer, and it was kind of at a pivot point of his college career. Oklahoma State decides to go to Oregon. I know you recruited him as a high school kid, but, you know, what did you see in him at high school that made you want Wyndham on your team, aside from the fact that he's got some talent? Well, like, you know, we go out and recruit all the time, and you see kids, and and you're trying to make decisions on, is he good enough, and I think he's good enough, and then you see Wyndham, and it's like, holy smokes, he might be too good. You know, it's like, will he stay more than one year? I mean, the talent, it just it, it's easy to see. Just the power. Um, he's an incredible athlete. And so there's just a natural speed there that it's hard to do unless you're just a freak athlete. And so that's what really struck me is, is just how um, intense and talented he was. And he, he chose Oklahoma State, which you know, is kind of our, our Alabama football, so to speak, Oklahoma State golf they're the dominant program and and so he goes there but it's a really intense program and it's there's a lot of expectations and pressure and so he gets there and the his head coach that recruited him was no longer there lost his job so I don't know why but whatever um that happened and then he loses his mother and so the two big people in his life the coach that he adored there and and his mother were gone and he was kind of a a mother you know a mama's boy so to speak and so he was he was lost big time, and his game was showing it. We we host the national championship in 16, the year that we won, and I remember looking at Oklahoma State and going, where is Wyndham Clark? He's not on the mm-hmm. team. So he did not make their national championship team, five guys. Um, and I'm like, that is really – it was really odd to me. It's like, how can he not make that squad? He's so good. And then lo and behold, he you know transferred a week later and – a couple months later, I was able to get him, which really was a blessing because I'd lost Aaron Wise because he turned pro and Wyndham came in and filled a huge hole for us. So, um, But just looking back, I think Oklahoma State, as good as they were, it was really pressure-packed. And with all the stuff that Wyndham had gone through, it was just too much. He was just – he was lost, and, and, and it was a tough period for him. So when he came to Oregon and I was talking to John about it, it was just like we got to create an atmosphere where it's just not so heavy. It's got to be fun. It's got to be light and let this kid's talent come out. And, and um, I, think, I think that happened, and he had an amazing run, was the Pac-12 player of the year, and first-team All-American, and now you're U.S. Open champion. So it's kind of a magical story. My role wasn't a lot of X and O. It, it really wasn't. I mean, I just kind of connected some dots for him and, and hopefully just, you know, got out of his way, to be honest. I don't know. I look back. I don't know how much coaching hard. I, I learned more from him than I think he learned from me. But um, it's really satisfying to play whatever role I did. You know, I think that's good coaching, though, you know, because I think a lot of times when you see somebody who's struggling or maybe – didn't have success in one place coaches will try to step in and do too much i think it's astute that you recognized what he needed was to relax he needed some comfort around him and he needed right. a place where he could go have fun again because right i mean really like i have coaches the college coaches pro coaches will tell me all the time casey like hey it's supposed to be fun like you know you forget yeah. it when the stakes are going so high but you know you got you fostered that so i do think you deserve credit for that yeah well thank you i Again, I, I as I look back on that time, when I went out to recruit him for the second wave when he was transferring, I remember he wanted 
he wanted me to give him mechanical help. He wanted like, what do you see? What am I playing so bad? And it was, it was just kind of like this mind that was going a million miles. And initially, you know, you want to play that role. It's like, let me look, let me see if I can't call some people that could get, you know, try to put the pieces together. But then as time went on, it was like, you know what? This guy's swing is amazing. And even when he works on it, it's not really changing. It's, it's, it's gotta be something more than that. And then when you hear the stories of kind of what he was going through and where his mind was, it was pretty obvious that, look, this is not, he doesn't need Butch Harmon, although Butch is amazing. He just, he needs some love. You know, he just needs some, he needs some compassion and he needs um, a community around him that supports him. And, and certainly, uh, you know, he got that, but he got that from, from like Jeff and Jamie. So um, he had stayed initially when I recruited Wyndham as a 15 year old, he came to Eugene for the Pacific coast amateur Eugene country club. And he had um, his, he had, um, housing there with a family, Jeff and Jamie, ironically, I had never met them before. And so I was watching this young kid who's a superstar and I see Jeff and Jamie out there and I got to know him. And, and uh, lo and behold, even though Wyndham didn't come to Oregon right after that, I became great friends. I mean, Jeff's one of my closest friends and, and we've all kind of stayed in touch. Even though we went to Oklahoma state, we all stayed in touch because they're just friends, you know? And so when Wyndham transferred in, he actually ended up living with them. Um, we had to get, you know, approval for that and everything, but, um, he, he lived with Jeff and Jamie. And so he went from kind of a college experience of losing your mom and being in, you know, probably a lot of a party type situation throughout college. And then he's living with Jeff and Jamie with their three young daughters. And he's just Uncle Wyndham at that point. And I think what happened is he just the pressure was off. And, you know, he did lose his mom and Jamie's not a second mom, but he got a lot of love from the Gaskells. And that just he just blossomed, you know, and it wasn't perfect, obviously, but because um, he was still struggling with so much stuff, but he got the love he needed and he blossomed. And so those people, Jeff and Jamie and, and, and John Ellis, uh, played every bit as big a role as I did. I just got to watch it and, and host a Pac-12 trophy for it. So it was pretty cool for me. <laughs> <laughs> Oregon men's golf coach Casey Martin is our guest. Uh, you mentioned the national title in 2016. You got a guy like Aaron Weiss. You get a Wyndham uh, Clark story. Can you use that in recruiting? I, I, is there a is there a correlation like your buddy Chip Kelly in football? You know, you have some success. Does that help you get into living rooms you couldn't get into before? Or what are those conversations like as you go back out recruiting after your guy wins the U.S. Open? Yeah, that's what was going on right now. The recruiting doors just opened up June 15th on this next wave, and so I'm out there. And yeah, I I do kind of drop the hints that way. It's like <laughs> you see the U.S. Open, um, but you don't want to be you know over the top on it. But yeah, some kids know that, and and I think more it gives you some measure of credibility that hey, he went to Oregon, and if he did it, I can do it. Maybe um, I think at Oregon you have to overcome some of those misconceptions that you can't do it at a place like Oregon because of the weather or, or whatnot, that you need to go to Florida, Texas, or Oklahoma State or something. And, and certainly those places are great, but I think it just lends some validi- validity that you can do it in the Pacific Northwest. So that that's huge for sure. At Stanford, you had, I think, a great experience as a golfer. I mean, you come from South Eugene High School. You go to Stanford. You're, like, on a big stage there. You got Tiger Woods for a spell as a teammate. So you got a taste of it there. I got to know, like, did you see the, the I guess, the trajectory of Tiger? Like, I think you probably, everyone thought he was going to be really good, but did you see Tiger when you were at Stanford? Oh, yeah. Yes, 100%. He, to have that experience, again, I have these one-year experiences, and, and I got it one year with Tiger. I was a senior, he was a freshman, and he was, I mean, beyond incredible, beyond incredible. 
um, mentally, emotionally, physically, everything about it. He was better than everyone at everything. And I remember my first experience with Tiger um, playing with him. Uh, Nota Begay, myself, and Tiger went and played a, a course called Sharon, um, Sharon Heights, just above Stanford. Tough golf course, narrow, and the greens had been punched. And Nota and I played pretty well, shot even par. And Tiger um, shot 68, hit every green, couldn't make a putt because it was on putt afterwards. And Nota looked at me, and I looked at him, and we're like, what did we just see? I mean, he hit every shot, like, perfect. And, you know, for a 18 year old kid, it's just, it, it was, it, and it wasn't just like perfect. It was like so far and so dynamic. It was just incredible. So to have that year, um, it was, it was magical to be with him as well. Um, and nothing he does shocks me. Nothing surprises me. He just, he's so different. It's hard to explain. You're talking Michael, you're talking the greatest of the greatest. And to have a year with that is, is pretty cool. You've had a journey yourself as a player and now as a coach. Are, are you enjoying the coaching? Is it as fun as you imagined it would be? Are you getting the the high highs that you got as a player, as a coach? Is that is or or is it? Yeah. Is is nothing compare? You know, um, there's what's what's interesting is I would say absolutely. There, to, to win that national championship and to see when the kids have had an experience like that, that they got to cherish and you got to put that together is incredibly rewarding, maybe more rewarding when, than when you're out there on your own because you're kind of doing it for other people. And I, I think that's what I've enjoyed the most about it is it's, the tour is so selfish, Not, and it should be. It's just you. You're your own team, right? Um, but when you get to be a coach, it's, it's not – it's different that way. And I think that's really the rewarding part is you're doing it for a school, for a community and, and for the kids. And of course for yourself to some degree too. But um, I think that's a really rewarding part that I've enjoyed is that it's not just for me. The tours, like you said, it's, it's not narcissistic, but it's self absorbed in a lot of ways. It's everyone, you know, it's all about me and my time and what I do all the time and everyone get out of my way. I've got to do it. And it, it can kind of wear on you. Now, the great thing about the tour is there's just this, carrot of not only financial wealth but you know it's a it's a thrill and and i I will say i do miss that competitive juice that waking up on big rounds where you're so nervous and you just can't you know you're can't eat because you got a big round i mean that stuff it sounds bad but it's amazing when when you don't have it it you you miss that juice you know so so coaching's a little different on that end but it's very satisfying to like you said get to play a role with these kids and and um, hopefully help them a little bit, you know. Yeah, well, you did, and I, I think it's a big success. It was a great story. It still continues to be one. Excited to see uh, what your program turns out next. Thank you for making time, Casey. Anytime. Thanks Thanks for thinking of me. Appreciate it very much. You bet. There it is. Wyndham Clark goes on to win a U.S. Open. Uh, you don't forget the people who helped him get there. Fantastic interview. Love the Love the comments about Tiger Woods as well. Uh, once you leave it here, Anna pops into the studio next. You got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. I'm ready to go play golf after that last interview. Uh, BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament will take place on Thursday. We are just uh, 48 hours away. Judah Newby will be on the broadcast with uh, our very own Stephen Vaughn covering the ninth annual bft foundation celebrity golf tournament want to thank miss oregon and alex molden and neil lomax and bobby gross from the 1977 blazers world championship team uh, among the other celebrity golfers who are all showing up helping out kids helping out for the day 
playing some golf. Uh, we're going to raise some money, and uh, the beneficiary of the tournament is ultimately Camp Exceptional. It's the summer camp for for uh, typical kids and special needs kids, a uh, very inclusive camp that um, is the highlight of the summer, I think, for our family. Anna's popped into the studio. Uh, High Caliber Millwrights is the sponsor for the ninth annual BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament. want to thank High Caliber for buying into the community, their support of kids, and uh, helping uh, kids smile. Anna, I want to talk about you as a kid. I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, good. Let's gonna... not talk about me as a golfer, uh, but let's talk about me as a kid. You actually have some good natural talent. Your yeah. golf instincts are good. That only gets you so far. Yeah, it, but it, it achieves the the thing that every golfer is afraid of. People are watching. You're on the tee box. You're about to hit the tee. And you seem to step up and swing the club well in that situation. Well, you must be looking away on all those times that I swing the club and it makes no contact with any ball. And you look good on the course. Okay, well. Because you look like the LPGA Tour, if I could just say that. <laughs> yeah. Can I say that without got, sounding racist? I've got the look. <laughs> no, I don't. I, that's not racist yeah. to me. There's a lot of Asians on that tour, man. You just look like. i got to channel all those Korean yeah. And they're mostly Korean. You're not Korean, though. I'm not Korean, but, uh, yeah. And I don't know what Rose Zhang is. I think she's Chinese. I think she's Chinese. Yeah, I've, I'm efforting her on the show. You're efforting? Yeah. yeah. Efforting. Big, big deal. I had to, I reached out to Stanford. Stanford said... As in the university. Yeah, because that's where she goes to school. Correct. And she won an NCAA championship, and then she turned pro and yeah. won her first pro event yeah. and within a week. She's gangbusters. And um, her representation i was referred from stanford to her representation yeah then her representation said things are crazy for her right now <laughs> you think and you're not good morning america right okay and i said is she going Did on they good? really say that no but they because you made that comment you went oh she's gonna be on good morning america oh or for sure today's show or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. so i said to her representation they said oh things are crazy for her now we'd love to get her on with you let, can we circle back when things die down for her yeah basically when i don't want her on the show they'll get her for me on the show. Well, okay. Who the question is who will you get first? Will you get past Coach Prime's people oh. or will you get past Rose Zhang's people? It'll be that and then I've also been efforting Portugal the man. You have to stop saying efforting though. <laughs> Cuz no regular human being yeah. outside of news uses that as a verb. So, it'll but be But who's Portugal the man? Portugal is that the a man. musician? It's a musician. Okay. Come on. Sorry. I you know, that's loves, like a big, empty place in my brain. Portugal the man loves One of the Blazers. The places in my loves brain. the Blazers. So oh, okay. I thought, you know, here's my order of operations. Yes. Portugal the man will come on first. <laughs> why, why do you want Portugal the man? Because so it, it, it's, a, it's a musician, a famous musician uh -huh. who's like into sports. Okay. 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 So this Check is, some boxes. This is good. Okay. He knows sports. <laughs> So, okay. And so I, I think we'll get Portugal the man like tomorrow. Really? Yeah, I'm working. Before I'm that close. Coach Prime. I'm that before close. Day. <laughs> well, you know what I use. How long have you been working on Portugal the man? Though? Uh, about two weeks. Okay. So but you know, what, but you know what I know. use? They this don't is know. this is an honest thing. Like, I don't know that much about Portugal the man. Oh boy. But I know Portugal the man <laughs> is kind of a big deal in some circles. Okay. So as I'm talking to Portugal's people. <laughs> Okay, I'm emailing with his people. I don't think you can just use it as one word. You have to yeah. say all three words every time. As I'm emailing <laughs> with his people, yeah, they're saying how busy he is. Right. I love that when pe well, I love when people go. 
I'm so busy. Okay? Uh-huh. We're all busy. It's yeah. all relative. Everyone listening to this radio broadcast is busy as hell. We're all busy. Yeah. Don't play that, oh, I'm so busy card. Yeah. And expect everybody to be like, oh, you're so busy. Yeah. Like, I can't do that. I can't do that to, like, my friends. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm so much busier than you. Uh-huh. They'll laugh at me. Okay? So here's uh, what Portugal demands, Portugal's people said. Portugal's people said... He's really busy. He's got an album release, whatever. You know, there's a visit coming up to Portland, by the yeah. way. So I was like, that's fine. I said, if he can't make it, I'll get President Obama on the show. Because we've already had the president, right? Okay. So I play that card. Uh-huh. Like, you know what? Like, you're not a big deal. We've mm-hmm. had President Obama on the show. So I'm able to say that. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I play that card back. And then his representation came right back and said, how's Wednesday? Wow. <laughs> Really? That yeah, worked for you? It works because you have to tell them. It's a little bit of a brushback pitch. Yeah. You have to tell them, like, I don't care if we get them or not. We'll move on. This isn't about us pandering. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's not about what we can do for you. This is like when you're in middle school and you don't want to act like you're you're too into that person that you have a crush on. You know? I you got to play it a little cooler. I don't know that one. I don't know that. But yes, the whole I'm too busy thing is really kind of a cop out. We have a family friend who's been working on a birthday surprise for a loved one. Okay. And this friend of ours is persistent as all get out. Like, it's part of the reason he's been so successful in what he does in business. But I have realized watching him in this process this is why he got to where he is this birthday surprise thing includes as of two weeks ago maybe a week ago a tribute from martha stewart okay and not like not like where you go on cameo or one of those websites where you pay a certain amount and said celebrity will wish your loved one a happy birthday it wasn't even like that he just found a way to get to her people and when they came back with, well, she's really busy, his take was, well, she'll either do it or she won't. Because we're all busy, and this is 30 seconds out of her day. Yep. I thought that was a fascinating take and a fascinating response, which then generated her complying with the video. Yeah. Martha freaking Stewart. Yeah. We're all busy. Yeah. It's relative, though. By the way, Portugal the Man is a band. It's not a person. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> are they from Oregon? They are based in Oregon now. Okay. But I believe they're originally from Alaska. Okay. And See, it's there's some neurons firing in my brain <laughs> about this. This is so. But anyway, <laughs> what we're going to talk about with <laughs> Portugal the Man tomorrow is oh, is tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. It's I, for sure tomorrow. Well, that's what I told him. I said Wednesday. Locked in? Tomorrow, 3 o'clock. Judah, does that work for you? Yeah, John, I'll be here. That works. Portugal the man. Do you know who Portugal the man is, Judah? Oh, my goodness. Big time. They're massive Blazer fans. They are Blazer fans. There's more than one of them. Oh. See? Yeah. <laughs> I hope actual, they're not I think, right the, I think there's five band members. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, if they're listening right now, yeah. then good on them. Well, I know, but now I'm feeling embarrassed that I mm. don't know. I should. I feel like I should know, you know more what? about them. Can you well, feel it still? Maybe part of Is the that one interview. of their songs. Are you just sick to yourself? 
the uh, under, are, are maybe you really the, are you I'm, throwing I'm just, out song titles now? No, I'm just trying to give you some clues. That's a big hit. Oh, okay. Do you want to play that the song so, for our listeners who haven't heard? I Portugal can't be the, the only one, right? No, there's a lot of people out there listening, going, "I don't know who this uh, is." Okay. Yeah. It's a sports radio show. Yeah. You know, we could play that game with them tomorrow. We'll just name sports references that are obscure, <laughs> turn it into a Jeopardy game. But or we could just talk to them about like why they like the Blazers and how interesting. It'll be a different interview. Pop you know? quiz. I What's the infield fly rule? I've had hit and miss interviews with with uh, musicians. Mm-hmm. There you go. know that song. you didn't know them but you knew their music <laughs> there you go i think they've won at least one grammy yeah seems like they have i don't know if we're having the whole band on or the lead singers on feels I mean, like you should find out we're gonna find out tomorrow the other thing was <laughs> the, they wanted to be in studio okay mm-hmm. which would have been really cool because when you have musicians in studio they will sometimes bring a guitar you know yeah they'll play a song yeah. We've had that happen over the years. We've also had... We Are had, we going to have them at our house? No. Is that what's happening? No, they're, they offered to come <laughs> to the studio if I could do the interview on a different day. I didn't want oh. to do it on a different day. I want to do it tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, I was busy. Like, okay. And I, I wasn't just saying that to act like I was busy. I yeah. was just like, I'm too busy. Oh, sure. Sorry. Now, now I, you can say you're busy. I can't do it. Um, so uh, the idea being... That they're going to come on. We're going to talk a little bit about the Blazers. I'll Uh ask them what they will do with Damian Lillard. Does the same kind of drama happen in the music industry? Yeah. That happens with, with, uh, you know, NBA players? Yeah. You know, how do you keep a band together? Who's the Yoko Ono in the group? You know, (laughs) stuff like that. Okay. Stuff like that. Yeah. But. Yeah, uh, they're from Wasilla, Alaska. Okay. They're now based in Portland. They, uh, two of them met and began playing music together back in high school at Wasilla High School in Alaska. Mm. And they have, in fact, won a Grammy. Their 2017 single, Feel It Still, won Best Pop Duo Group Performance. Is that what we just heard? Annual Grammy Awards. Correct. Is that what we heard? Yes. Yeah, see? I, I have been under the So rock. where do they rank as far as guests that we have had on? Because, you know, like, give us a athletic uh, equivalent of Portugal the man. Is uh, Was Mike Tyson a bigger deal than Portugal the man? Yes. Okay. Was, trying to figure out where they rank. Was uh, Norm MacDonald being in studio bigger than Portugal the man? Yeah. Okay. How about Roseanne Barr? Well, I would probably put Portugal the man up there, but that's because I'm not a, like a Roseanne Barr okay. you know, P1. All right. She's not your thing. No I thought she was a lot nicer. She was a much nicer human being than I expected her to be, Roseanne. Isn't that usually the case, though? She was a nice person, 
at least just in passing, like she could have been your next door neighbor, that she's the lady who lives down the street, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then when she started to be funny, mm -hmm. you know who I found to be really kind of sad, yeah, but in a way that was charming? Who? Polly Shore. Yeah. Polly Shore was real. Yeah. It surprised me because we see Wheeze and the Juice and all that stuff. He was doing all the he was doing all his bits when we were on air. Yeah. But in the four or five minutes before he went on air, when we were on a commercial break, and then after, he was a genuine, real person. And on his way out of the studio, he stopped me and he said, uh, "Hey, that." He goes, that wasn't the normal interview I do. Because, mm -hmm. you know, he shows up and they have him do all his stupid wheezing the juice and all that stuff he did mm -hmm. as Polly Shore. Yeah. And uh, instead we talked about his mother. We talked about the comedy club. And we talked about how the, l difficult his life and upbringing was and how great it was in some ways and, and what is happening to the comedy industry. And it was a different kind of interview. And uh, I think I... I threw him a little bit because mm -hmm. he first thought he was just doing kind of a jackass normal yeah. radio interview. Yeah. And so on the on the way out of the studio, he stops me and he says, hey, he goes, that was a very different interview. And he got like s suddenly like out of character. Yeah. <laughs> and he uh, said, I really enjoyed that. And if you ever need me back, you know, whatever, you know, oh. maybe he's just blowing well, smoke Well, you should me, have but... had him back. He was just in town recently. I know. Maybe you inspired him to incorporate some of that into his act. But I thought it was, it was kind of sobering to hear him kind of talk about the fact that he wasn't a fully developed person because of the way he grew up. Mm -hmm. Like he grew up in the back of his mother's comedy club seeing like, you know, um, you know, all these you know, Bobcat Goldwaith and yeah. Eddie Murphy and Chris Rock and all these people come through his mom's comedy club. He didn't have a normal childhood. Yeah. But you know? isn't that refreshing, though, that he was authentic in that way? Yeah. A friend of mine who recently saw him at Helium said that he actually said at the end of his act, you know, thank you guys. You guys are all I have. This is all I know is to mm. do stand-up. I don't know how to do anything else. And she said it was weird because the crowd went wild when he said that, but she was sitting there thinking, like, well, gosh, that's kind of sad. It's sobering. You know? yeah. It is sobering. Yeah. I, I actually think the comedians we've had in over the years, and Judah, you've seen some of this. Like, I think um, like John Lovitz was another example of this. He came in right after his father died. Yeah. Okay? His father was a, a doctor. And his father wanted to be a comedian, but went to medical school, became a doctor. And then John Lovitz, you know, knew that his father's dream was to be a comedian, went on and became a comedian. And his father had just passed away, and Lovitz brought in his dog. He had this little kind of pug dog. Really? <laughs> you know, he brought it in with him. And he was very, um, he was just very quirky and different yeah and then he sat down and he kind of said well how is this going to go and i said well, we're not scripting any of this we're just going to talk yeah and we talked about his father and he's there to do a comedy club and sell comedy tickets and he started crying on <laughs> oh, air no. he was crying because oh. i said to him like are you fulfilling your father's dream it's yeah. like is is your entire existence rooted in the idea that you were li living your father's dream oh geez and, Oprah. and uh he started crying and then he said, and come see my comedy club, my comedy <laughs> show tonight at Helium or whatever. But it was a great interview. Mm -hmm. Like, and same thing. Like, I, I thought he, some of the, like, I think to get up on stage and to have that kind of humor, there has to be something a little dark going on. Oh, absolutely. Look, I mean, yeah. look, 
normal people don't make very good stand-up comics. Let's just put it that way, right? Yeah. Like most of the people that are really good at what they do, you know, when you think of the legends, like Robin Williams, mm-hmm. you know, he was a savant yeah. as far as comedy and timing. And like if if any of us, most of 99% of us got up there to try and do stand-up, we would just flop. But it's the people that can kind of cut through the noise and, vul- you know, allow themselves to be vulnerable a lot of the time they're, um, they're, with what yeah. they're talking about. Because a lot of them, they talk about really horrible things that have happened in their lives, but they're able to frame it in a way that we can see the satire and the humor in it somehow. I also think that the, the successful comedians, I have noted, they're likable. They're, they're, you think so? Yeah. They're like you want to like them. Yeah. And you relate to them, and in part, like they're telling their painful story, and they're making fun of it, and we're laughing with them. But there is a uh, part of you that likes them. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. Otherwise, you don't go to see them. Like. Yeah. And I think the ones that have that, like people like Jerry Seinfeld, Feld. Yeah. You know, I think you like. Uh, you know Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. You uh, Sebastian Maniscalco. You like him. Well, I look you at wanna, what Richard yeah. Pryor talked about yeah. in his act. Yeah, you know. So you want to like him? Yeah. Because so I can remember like you know, Bobby Lee came in studio, and he was great. We went to see his show. He was insane on the <laughs> on the stage. I, I actually think. He probably needs treatment for some kind of personality <laughs> disorder that he has, and him being on stage is his way of self-medicating it. He wound up like in his underwear. He took his stage, clothes right? off, and he just kept going farther and did we farther. See, did we see his naked bump? I, think, I believe we I did. I think he did, and yeah. I, and I, I I came on. I remember leaving with you and going. He was so funny. He didn't need to stoop. To get to the oh, like true. the part where he showed his backside, yeah, yeah, he didn't need to stoop, yeah. And then you, we had Jamie Jamie Lee in studio, that she's a writer. She was a writer on Ted Lasso. Yeah, and she was an executive producer on Ted Lasso. She, her jokes were super smart, super funny. Mm-hmm. Liked her as well. She wasn't as good a performer on stage, but she had great material. I I'm just in awe of people who can stand up there in front of a live audience in person, yeah. and pull off stand up. Because I just, I don't quite understand how they can do it. It's yeah. a whole, and when you look at the ones that are really good, who constantly are working at their craft, it's the idea that Jerry Seinfeld will just walk into a comedy club in New York. He'll go to the Comedy Cellar or somewhere like that, and just to work out his material. And his whole thing is like, I want to be able to work it out in front of a crowd that paid $25 to get in or 20 bucks to get in versus... A crowd that's paying, you know, a hundred to two hundred dollars for the seat work, that they're Work occupying. on some of this material. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about what makes a great coach. We've got coaches here in the state of Oregon, from Jonathan Smith to Dan Lanning to Dana Altman to uh, Shante Leggins at University of Portland, and and back again. What are the things that make a great coach? And if we're ranking the coaches in the state of Oregon, who's at the top of that list right now? I want your input on this. 503-417-7575. Who's the best coach in the state of Oregon? What makes a good coach? What goes into coaching? You've looked around sports. You understand what makes a good coach. Is it X's and O's? Is it game preparation? Is it recruiting? It's Of course, it's all those things. But 
What uh, components go into a successful coach, regardless of sport? And by the way, if we're holding a discussion about who is the best coach in the state of Oregon, and let's say major college and professional ranks, and you know that opens up things like uh, Dana Altman at Oregon and uh, Dan Lanning at Oregon and Jonathan Smith at Oregon State, and how about Scott Ruick, the women's basketball coach at Oregon State, and Mitch Canham and Shantae Leggins at the University of Portland. What? is a good coach what goes into that chauncey billups where does he rank where is what are his strengths what are his weaknesses 503-417-7575 is the phone number you tell me who's the best coach in the state of oregon and oh by the way what makes a good coach in your mind let's just assume we are crafting the best of uh all worlds when it comes to coaching well i want to go down that rabbit hole uh meanwhile sherry from atlantic records has uh, replied to my message. I asked her about Portugal Demand, who will be on tomorrow's show, 3 o'clock. Um, it will be the lead singer, John Gorley, who is coming on. They have a uh, uh, a new album out. It's called Chris Black Changed My Life. And uh, they are doing a fundraiser, by the way, uh, for uh, John Gorley's daughter. So he's going to come on and talk about that. And I'm going to ask him a bunch of uh, sports questions slash music questions, but... It'll be the Portugal the Man's lead singer, John Gorley. I want to know, how'd you come up with Portugal the Man? And by the way, it's Portugal, period. The Man. The Man. Yeah. So do you have to say it that way? With like a slight pause? So should we go BFT, period. The show. <laughs> That's how we should do it? Um, what goes into being a good coach? And is it the same stuff that goes into being a good leader in other areas? I want you to think about that, Anna. I'm going to tell a brief story, and I want our listeners to weigh in at 503-417-7575. Help us out in this discussion. So I'm uh, I'm covering Bobby Knight, Indiana basketball, 1998-1999. I got into conversation with Knight about what makes a good coach. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of wondering, if does it hold up today, what he told me then? Okay, this is 20, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Does it hold up today? He said to me, if... You, there are three areas of coaching. And he said, if you can do one of these three things well, you're a good coach. If you can do two of them well, you're going to win conference championships. And if you can do three of them well, you're going to go to the Hall of Fame. And those three areas in his mind, one, area number one was actual X's and O's. Like game strategy, you're in a timeout, um, you are between innings, uh, you know, regardless of sport. Just the actual strategy of the game. Do you understand strategy? Can you do it really well? Can you call a play during a timeout that results in a bucket? Can you make a substitution that results in a game-changing uh, uh, flow of the game thing? Mm -hmm. um, that was area one. Area two was game preparation. Okay, Like, is your team prepared to play mm -hmm. before you walk into the gym? Did you practice well? Are you practicing the right things? And are you getting that transfer from practice to games that coaches will always talk about. He's, you know, that's another area. So some people, really good game managers, but don't really prepare their team in the best way they can. This is why some coaches will have assistant coaches who are worth a damn that fill in a deficiency in their area. Like if you have a coach who's a really good strategist, X and O person, they might hire a couple of assistants who are better practice managers and say, hey, I'm going to put you in charge of practices. Mm -hmm. I will handle game strategy. Good coaches do that, too. That's another element of good coaches. Like, hey, put your ego aside. You know, the greater good. Good leaders, what do they invite? They invite fresh ideas. 
they they're they're allergic to groupthink. All right, the third area that Bobby Knight said you could become a great coach uh, is recruiting. Okay, it really just is. Frankly, he talked about that getting <laughs> players, and but he didn't talk about getting the best players. He said get the kinds of players that are right for your program, right for your team. Um, and I I only heard one other coach speak in that way. It was Pat Casey at Oregon State, who said I don't need all the best players. Like I asked him, they were playing North Carolina. I think it was in '07 for the national championship in Omaha. And I asked Pat Casey, I said, they got they have better talent. They're going to have more high draft picks on the field than you will. And Pat Casey said, I don't need all the best players. I just need some of them. And he was speaking to that same thing. Like, hey, I don't need the best five-star recruits. I just need enough of them. Mm-hmm. And I need the rest of the players to be players who fit my program. And I think some coaches get lost in chasing – the highest rated players and don't really think about like how does this fit together and I do think it's more challenging now that there's a transfer portal and there's so much in flux but as I say those things are those the same things that make good business leaders good managers good bosses uh, yeah, I mean I think there's a lot of similarities for sure when I think back to coaches that I've had or that I've admired over the years it's coaches who uh, got you to want to play for each other so you weren't playing to please the coach or to in a way that wasn't going to get you in trouble it was that they really fostered this idea that you had to take ownership of the team yourself and you were playing for each other for a collective success i like that but the same concept goes for you know a manager in a newsroom or or uh, some kind of boss somewhere else yeah and i think you know hiring the right people sometimes i laugh at the way teams hire and I laugh at the way business is higher. Sometimes you uh, you over-interview. Teams, like they'll go and they'll take a coach who has had uh, almost no proof of performance, very little success, maybe at a small school. Chip Kelly's a great example of this. He, you know, he's at New Hampshire game planning as an offensive coordinator, and then you know, four years later he's the head coach at Oregon, never a head coach anywhere else. He went from coordinator to coordinator to head coach. How do we know he can do it? Well, he could do it. A lot of coaches can do it. You have to be able to – I think it took a lot of confidence from – I'll give Phil Knight and Pat Kilkenny credit there – to be able to promote Chip Kelly without real proof of performance right? in the wake of Mike Bellotti's tenure. Think about that. How that many places? Some guts. How many places would have said, you know what, he's never coached before, let's give him the keys? You know, that doesn't happen very often. But, but Oregon saw something in Chip Kelly. Now, that brings us to the question I asked off the top. Judah, who's the best coach in the state of Oregon? I'm going Jonathan Smith. And maybe it's a little bit of a bias to, to college football here, but I just I love coaches that you can see the growth year over year without anything major, yeah. and it's just progressive growth over time. Uh, I'm a sucker for that. I resonate with that. I think Jonathan Smith has that proof of performance. He's really good. He's really, really good. I think if you're looking for – a very well-rounded blend of those three things. I think Jonathan Smith's got it, and I think he's at the right place at Oregon State, and I think they are backing him now financially, which is great to see. Dan Lanning can really recruit. Yeah. I don't know about the X's and O's. I don't know about the preparation part, but he can really recruit. Now, will the resources at Oregon be the great equalizer? We'll talk about it next. I definitely want to continue that conversation uh, a little bit later in the show about coaching and Jonathan Smith, Dan Lanning, the differences. 
you know, uh, I wrote today a little bit about Oregon State baseball and Mitch Canham, and I had some people in the comment section at johnconzano.com saying, well, he's too even-keeled. But it's that same even-keeled that Jonathan Smith has that people uh, celebrate as a uh, as a positive. Oh, that's you know, he's so even-keeled. I think sometimes when someone's even-keeled and they win, everyone goes, oh, he's so poised. And when they're even-keeled and they lose, Nate McMillan, great example of this, Oh, he doesn't care enough. I want to see him yell a little more on the sideline. He needs to be as frustrated as we are when we're watching the games. We'll talk about what makes great coaching this hour. Punch it audio still ahead. Anna's here. She got a she has a new hairdo. Get your hair cut? Nice. Mm-hmm. Looks great. Thank you. Notice how I just I shut up after I said looks great? Yeah. I'm not the smartest person. When you get your hair done, is that the right way to say it? Sure. Hair hair done? Sure. That's not wrong. You get your hair done, I will often say the wrong thing. No, no. You say the right thing, and then you follow it with the wrong thing. I'm just dumb sometimes. (laughs) You know? Like, I'll go, oh, it looks great. What happened? (laughs) (laughs) Or, you added this. You know, you added some color, and you go, no, I didn't. Oh, okay. (laughs) Just be quiet. Don't say what happened if your significant other gets their hair cut. That's my advice for the day. (laughs) We're going to uh, do the 5 at 5 now. Yeah. You're ready for it. You Mm -hmm. told me you had a question for me. Um, I have a question for our listeners. Judah, you know what today is. Yes, today is June 27th. It's Tuesday. What do we always do on Tuesday? We give tickets to go see the Seattle Mariners. Right. We have two pairs of tickets to see the Mariners for somebody who was paying attention to yesterday's 5 at 5. So coming up at the end of your 5 at 5, I'm going to ask a question about yesterday's 5 at 5. And if you happen to be listening yesterday, you're going to be uniquely qualified to win those tickets. Uh, secondarily, Anna, during the commercial break, said, hey, I have a question I want to ask you on air. I don't know what you're going to ask me, but we'll do that as well, okay? Yeah. Do I win Mariners tickets if I get it right? Probably not. <laughs> well, we'll do it anyway. All right, here we go, the five. The five and five. The number one story, as Anna sees it, is... Leonard Fournette is still looking for his next NFL team. He spent three years with the Buccaneers, but... Today, he's expressing thanks because he escaped an unusual car incident without injury. The former pro bowler said on Instagram today that his SUV, his Dodge Durango, caught fire while he was driving it. He shared video of the burnt vehicle. He said he is okay after the incident. Man, it was one of those days, he said. But I would like to thank God. One of those days, you know, when your car catches on fire. Uh, It's unclear what caused the fire, but that seems like a scary situation. And, of course, this happened in Florida. I I noticed when he said, man, it was one of these days today, but I would like to thank God my car caught on fire while I was driving. Is he? He's not thanking God that his car caught on fire. He's thanking God that his car caught on fire and he's here to post on Instagram about it still afterwards. Assuming so, yes. Well, um, the Durango, man, that car burnt to a crisp. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. How does that happen? I don't know. I'm always confused by that. Like, 
I, it makes me think about my car. I'm like, oh, am I due for an oil change? You know, is that what leads? I don't really know what leads to a car fire. Just chalk it up as one of the many things in the world well, that I don't know. I'm glad he's okay. And uh, glad he's doing okay. Uh, troopers say that he made a controlled stop and he got out of it, which is the important thing you do if your car is on fire. And then firefighters arrived and tried to extinguish the blaze. They apparently didn't do a very good job of it. <laughs> It looks like it It was left in the uh, toaster too long, that Dodge Durango. Well, number two story is Anna sees it. Well, we've talked about uh, performance-enhancing drugs and the role that they have played in baseball, in cycling, in track and field. But an Australian businessman is asking the question... What if performance-enhancing drug prohibitions in sports didn't exist? Aaron D'Souza has announced plans for a competition next year called the Enhanced Games. Mm. It's an Olympics-like endeavor. It will not comply with the World Anti-Doping Agency rules and regulations in track and field, swimming, weightlifting, gymnastics, and combat sports. Will we see some athletes that win Olympic medals also win in the enhanced games? Just like, hey, might as well. Uh, it's an audacious plan. Uh, it, this this is born. This is a this is a thing that must have been born on sports radio in Australia. Like this, we've had this conversation. Like, what if Major League Baseball just said, "To hell with it, we can't enforce it." Guys would be hitting the ball to the moon, right? Barry Bonds happens all over again. The NFL, the NBA. Well, we're going to see it, apparently. The, the, all bets are off. The Enhanced Games says each Olympiad, another cohort of brave athletes sets new world records only to have their medals revoked, their careers suspended, and their names dragged through the mud. It is time to end this oppressive cycle. Ben Johnson. Remember him in the 88 Olympics? Yeah. Ben Johnson will be like the... Uh, torchbearer you know it's probably like 60 now <laughs> the website has a video of someone that the the founder claims has broken usain bolt's 100 meter world record we're about to see what humans on peds can do as if major sports hasn't already showed us uh, here we go i don't think this catches on and i'm confused like what if the times uh, and what if the feats are not as good as what we get in the Olympics? Because the world's best athletes are still going to go to the Olympics. They're not going to be want to be associated with PEDs. So you're going to get kind of that second-tier athlete who says, yeah, I'll do it. We'll see. Number three story. What do you got? Uh, speaking of PEDs, Lance Armstrong uh, has a podcast to promote now. I didn't know he had a podcast. Did you know he had a I podcast? Well, I figured everybody does. He recently interviewed Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, they talked about fairness in sports. Mm. And uh, there's a lot of people on social media that find it hilarious that he is talking about fairness in sports. They were talking about transgender athletes and fairness. This is the same person who, in 2012, was stripped of his cycling titles after an investigation found that he used performance-enhancing drugs during his career and was, in fact, the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program ringleader that the sport had ever seen, yeah. cycling. Let's talk a little bit about the doping. This is not the first time it's happened to me. This stuff started back in 1998. 
when I pissed in the bottle, as I told you earlier, having never taken performance-enhancing drugs, when I pissed in the bottle, there was not EPO in that piss or urine. From our perspective and from what's gone on at, at U.S. Postal and Discovery and, and, and all of those tours, we have nothing to hide. I have never doped. I can say it again, but I've said it for seven years. It doesn't help. But the fact of the matter is I haven't. He has told ESPN on the record and on camera that back in 95, when the team was struggling, that you announced to the team that you were going to begin doping and you were encouraging other teammates to do the same. What do you say to that account? No, again, complete nonsense. In my case, I mean, I came out of a, of a life-threatening disease. I was on my deathbed. Do you think I'm going to come back into a sport and say, okay, okay, doctor, give me everything you got. I just want to go fast. No way. would never do that. How many times do I have to say it? I'm just trying to make sure your testimony is clear. Well, if it can't be any clearer than I've never taken drugs, then incidents like that could never happen. Okay. How clear is that? Everybody wants to know what I'm on. What am I on? I'm on my bike, busting my ass six hours a day. One word to sum this all up? Credibility. Credibility. Is he addressing all that in uh, his podcast? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not sure I'm really interested in listening to a podcast with him. I'm interested. I want to hear. Yeah, because, you know, I always, I look, I always hope that people learn, they evolve, they grow. I am always hopeful that people can can move forward. So maybe Lance has moved on. Maybe he has grown up. I want to hear some of that. Maybe he regrets it. Maybe he can talk now and say, look, here's the pressure I was under. I made a horrific decision because I wanted to be the guy who had all the yellow jerseys. Number four. I think. Here we go. Four. What, what do you got? I'm on theme today because yeah. speaking of Olympic <laughs> Olympic type events, um, alcohol, it turns out, will not be allowed at the 2024 Paris Olympics except for fans who pay up front for VIP suite access. <laughs> you got to be uh, affluent to drink. Yeah. So like, alcohol... Uh, is allowed in France to be advertised in certain ways, like on billboards and some internet sites. But there's a, a law in France. Evans Law. Evans Law. It was established back in 91. It regulates the advertising of alcohol and tobacco, and it's meant to protect minors. Um, and it, clu- it includes restricting alcohol sales at sporting events. But the rich people in the VIP suites, they can drink. This came up in the state of Oregon. It um, did? Yeah, because uh, right now at the University of Oregon, I, I don't know what the par- the current policy will be for this next season, but there were different points of history at Autzen Stadium where you had to leave the stadium to get a beer, okay? Mm-hmm. You had to go over to the Mashovsky Center or you had to go wherever to get a beer. But they were serving alcohol in the club section. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, accusation was rendered back then that, oh, you have to, you have, to have club tickets to drink. Um, then I know in like 2018, Oregon said, we won't sell alcohol in the student section, which kind of makes sense to me. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Like, because most of those students are not going to be 21. <laughs> right. Good idea. Um, so they, they stopped selling ideas. in the student section. But the revenue stream generally wins that tug of war. Like, you know, if there's money to be made, they usually go make it. I'm interested in what they're doing in Paris. They apparently are not going to capitalize on the French drinking. Well, and the organizers of 
that Olympics could have applied for an exemption, but they're not likely to, to do so. Hmm. The law is very strict. Wow. Well, uh, beginning in 2019, by the way, at Autzen Stadium, yeah. they, uh, they began selling beer and wine in general concession areas. Hmm. So prior to that, you had an issue with it only being available in the club section. Phil Knight didn't care. <laughs> he could get a glass of wine. <laughs> Number five story as Anna sees it is... Oh, this is my favorite of the day. Um, some tourists on a bear viewing tour in Alaska had to fend off a charging brown bear recently. Man, a lot of that going on. And how did they do it? They did it by yelling and growling while staying in a tight group. <laughs> they were with the tour group Scenic Bear Viewing on a guided bear tour in Chinitna Bay on Lake Clark's Cook Inlet. Okay. During the video, the tourists are seen observing a pair of brown bears that are close by, not really in an aggressive posture, but then the camera shows one of the bears charging toward the group who, taking the lead of their guide, started to yell and growl. The guide then waited until the charging bear trailed off its charge to then take several steps forward to get that bear to run away. Wow. Does it, why are we seeing so many, like, first of all, you're on a bear tour and you see a bear, you should not be surprised, right? Well, yeah, that's kind of the point is this is a group that actually goes and shows people bears. But, um, you know, their advice, and I'm going to remember this, I guess, should I encounter a bear in this manner. It, they say, never run from a charging bear, even though your instinct is to run. It's called a bluff charge. They are just trying to get you to run. They have a natural chase instinct. Oh, so the, it's kind of like dogs at the dog park, you know? Yeah. They, where you want, they want you to run, and then, ch then once you start running, then they chase you. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, um, get in a tight group and yep. yell. Yeah, growl. Growl. Yell. Okay, growl. but th that seems a little counterintuitive because if that's making it easy on the bear, too. If the bear's like, hey, would you just ga gather up for me so that I could have you all at once? Yeah. And they do it for him. Yeah. I just don't know that I would have the wherewithal to stand there and just be like, it's okay, everybody. It's just a bluff charge. Let's all stand and you know yell what? He's bluffing. and growl. Do they talk about that ahead of time? Like sometimes on a tour, they'll be like, you know. <laughs> I would hope so. You know. I hope those are covered in the safety instructions prior to the tour. Well, there you go. Um, good stuff from the 5 at 5, Anna. Was I appreciate it, though? That. It was. It okay. was. So, Anna, um, we want to give away a pair of tickets. Oh, yeah. Do you want days five at five? Oh, you got to assume I remember what we talked about <laughs> yesterday. It's problematic. Yesterday on the yeah. five at five, you yeah. had five great stories. I was here. I was here. That you came up with. Yes. Okay. It was the segment that you popped into. Oh, okay. You know, on yeah. yesterday's show. Mm -hmm. And we will uh, have our audience line up for it. And okay. Yeah. You, okay. So here's what we're going to do, do. Here's what we're going to do. If you know the answer to the question Anna's going to ask... Um, well, why don't you just ask the question, and then I will see. You're going to win two pairs of tickets uh -huh. to go see the Mariners. Okay. Okay? So you can go see the Mariner game twice mm -hmm. if you know the answer to this question. But go if ahead. I ask it now, somebody can just, like, Google it, because these are news items, and no, then they'll but just you call can say, in with the answer. Yesterday in the 5 at 5, 
I said... You thought this was going to be a lot this. easier. No, you can make it harder. Yes. That's part of asking the question. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, you don't have to ask something that they could Google. You could oh, say, got it. what was John's response to? Okay. Or, hey, I, the here was, you know, you're, you're going to ask the question. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Anna, go ahead and ask the question. Uh, yesterday, I talked about um, Hollywood actors Ryan Reynolds and Michael B. Jordan investing in something. Mm. Okay, good. 503-417-7575. You said they were investing in uh, you know, uh you said they were investing How about we do it this way? You said that they were investing in F1 racing. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. We, but we offered up that athletes today are investing in pickleball, yes, and Formula 1 racing. Yes. And I said which I would invest in. Oh, right. Okay. Good. Of those two, which did I say I would invest in? Yes. 503-417-7575. Line up now if you want to win a pair of tickets. Phone lines are going crazy. (laughs) Phone lines are going crazy. And if you get put on hold, stay on hold because you know what can happen. You know what can happen. People may not get the answer to this i'm glad right? all these people remember because i really had to stretch my brain there to try and remember what all you right. said all right yesterday on the show michael and roseberg is called in michael listening on uh kskr 1490 in roseberg michael thanks for listening i appreciate you how you doing i am doing well and i gotta admit i didn't listen to yesterday's show but i love your show so <laughs> give it a shot uh you, you would invest in archery no, I would not invest in archery, but I really appreciate that effort. The fact that you called in having not known <laughs> the answer really means a lot to me, man. How's things in Roseburg? Well, I'm actually heading north to Salem, but I called in a while back on one of your questions. That I, again, did not hear the show, yeah. but I chose the player who was, uh, or the person who's leaving um, media. Yeah. For a purpose, well, and I was wrong on that one too. So I keep you trying. Need to, you need to listen more. That's the lesson <laughs> of this one. For crying out loud! All nice right. to hear from you, Michael Good, and Roseburg. He uh, he listens enough to play the game, <laughs> and he loves the show. I do appreciate that. I don't I don't need you to listen all day every day, <sighs> but find some consistency for us, okay? <laughs> Just work me in. Uh, let's go to Portia. Who's in Portland? Great name. Portia in Portland. It's, How you doing? It's, I'm doing well. It's just Porsche. Porsche. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. I will say I only I, I caught this exact portion of the show yesterday okay. on my drive home from work. That's okay. So it worked well. All right. uh, you so, would invest in pickleball. And for an extra bonus point, they are investing in the F1 team Alpine. You are a winner, Porsche. I appreciate you listening. And you're a careful listener. Uh, you're going to win two pairs of tickets to go see the Mariners. Who are you taking to the game? Well, I do have my wife, who is not a sports fan, will probably tell me to tell, take my two best friends from college, who uh, will take a train up there. We love to do that. So, Love it. All right, we're going to put you on hold. The next person you'll talk to is uh, one of our production assistants, maybe Mark or Zach or... Penelope coming soon here to talk to you about that answer. Porsche. Uh, he just taught me how to say that name, Alpine. I, I said Alpine on yesterday's show. Alpine? Yeah, the Formula One team. Right, good she, Good for you. I'm learning uh, with you. You are evolving as this show goes. Uh, I love careful listeners. So 
you know, every Monday in the 5 at 5, we will talk a little bit, and then Anna will remember something she said 24 hours earlier and ask a trivia question about it, and we will make it fun. And then somebody's going to win two pairs of tickets to see the Mariners. Uh, Love talking sports. I love that you're here listening to this show. And leave it here because we are about to do Punch It Audio. We got great sound and I got a lot to say about it. Leave it here. Good stuff. Appreciate all the listeners who called in. There were people lined up uh, 12 deep trying to get in on that contest. And I, uh, I wish I could give Mariners tickets to everybody. The best I can tell you is if you'd like to win two pairs of Mariners tickets, tune in next Monday to the 5 at 5. We're just making a habit. Listen to the 5 at 5 every day, and I uh, appreciate that you make this show part of your day. Uh, we are going to play some Punch It Audio. we got great sound today. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, if you're tuned in in hour number one, Ben Golliver of the Washington Post joined us. He talked about Scoot Henderson, the Blazers' uh, newest first-round draft pick. I asked him about Scoot. He said, uh, Scoot's going to give 100% every night. Punch it. I promise you this, John. Hold me to this. Scoot Anderson is going to give you absolutely everything he's got next year, every night. That's the kind of guy he is. He's got that workhorse mentality, that dog mentality, and it's going to be really, really fun to watch. And I think that that's a a strong reason Damian Lillard should want to be around it and have a a courtside seat for that. Look, I got excited about seeing Scoot Henderson after we had Tom Crean on the show in the run-up to the draft. A couple days before the draft, former Indiana and Marquette and Georgia coach said that he really thought Scoot was difficult to guard, would be hard to guard in space, and thought he could play alongside Damian Lillard. Well, I asked Oliver about Dame. Why isn't Damian Lillard showing his support of Scoot Henderson publicly? Golliver had some pointed remarks for Blazers star. Punch it. I understand why he's frustrated. I understand why he thinks, you know, hey, the clock's ticking here a little bit. But where's the tweet that says, hey, Scoot Henderson, welcome to Portland. I'm so excited to play with you, right? Where's the where's the retweet of the graphics of Scoot and Dame? I'm sure Blazers fans are putting those graphics out there on social media. Where's the welcome wagon for a guy in Scoot who – I mean, this guy graduated high school early so he could go play in the G League for two years, did nothing but grind his way, uh, you know, towards becoming a lottery pick. Reminds me an awful lot of a guy like Damian Lillard who put a lot of time in at Weaver State. These guys surely have things to bond about. There's been some reports that they've been in communication uh, as well. But where is the, you know, where's the leadership factor? Who's helping Scoot Anderson get comfortable in Portland? Yeah, it's a good point, but I, you know, I understand, like Golliver, why Damian Lillard's frustrated, and I do understand, like from a star standpoint, everything Lillard does right now, the music playing in the background of his TikToks or his Instagram reels, the a meeting that he has, you know, the fact that you know if he shows up at a park playing soccer and he's wearing the wrong T-shirt, you know, people are reading into everything. I would like Lillard to be a little more explicit with his plans, and I. And I wrote a little bit about it today. Like, I do think he is an enabler in this great misfortune that the Blazers have had in the last, uh, you know, seven or ten years where they haven't maximized Damian Lillard's talents. I think Lillard's a little bit of an enabler there. He hasn't been explicit. He hasn't been clear with his wishes. 
um, you know, look, if you if, if there's no or else here, there's no accountability that has been fostered until now by Lillard. And he, now he's holding a meeting and we, we don't really know what the meeting's about. Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN, said, and the meeting's nothing new, but it, it's new in Portland. Here's Woj. Punch. He met with the front office yesterday in the kind of meeting that star players have with their organizations all the time. So I think for all uh, the, the belief that he is, that some sort of a trade request is imminent, I think the facts speak to uh, you know, Damon Lillard is, is stationed in Portland. This is where he has said yeah. he wants to be. And the organization now has the opportunity over the next week plus, week 10 days, two weeks in free agency, uh, to see how they can improve this roster uh, and certainly bring in some players who could help more in the short term. It's going to be a little bit of a circus in the next week, 10 days, two weeks when it comes to Camp Lillard. I think every move he makes will be scrutinized. Ultimately, though, is he just looking for the Blazers to give him some kind of good faith gesture, a signing of one player, a trade of one player for a veteran that makes him feel like he's not so alone? Uh, Brian Windhorst uh, said that some NBA teams were surprised that Lillard hasn't already asked for a trade. Punch this is going to potentially cause some teams that were going to make offers for him to have to move on with business. They can't. They were waiting to see whether Dame Lillard was going to be on the market before they started to make moves this week. Now some teams are going to have to make a decision, either go forward or wait around. Uh, Lillard is going to wait around. It's, uh, it's certainly a move. It's, I guess, not surprising considering the way Dame has operated with the Blazers now for, for years. But it, it, it did take some people in the league by surprise that he didn't go forward with what everyone was expecting him to do. Yeah, look, I keep leaning towards him being in Portland for game one, minute one, next season. Uh, you know, I know that that story, the stories about him wanting to go to Miami are out there. I know Utah's got a pile of draft picks. People in Utah keep asking me, you know, will will Lillard, you know, ever go to the Jazz? Would he, would he accept a trade there? He doesn't have a no trade clause. I asked Ben Golliver, will Lillard be in Portland for minute one of game one next season? Punch it. Well, it, it's really tricky, man. Uh, it's not a simple answer. I would say, first of all, my expectations are relatively low, relatively modest for what Portland can do in terms of trading for talent to really help Damian Lillard in the short term. And so it, it puts it all on, on his court. Now, if he wants to go ahead and let's say he's not impressed with the moves that are made or nothing great materializes and he does issue that trade request, then I think it's definitely in Portland's best interest to get the best return that they can for him this summer and move forward with the youth movement, right? So that's why I do think a lot of this just comes down to what can Joe Cronin do here in the next seven to ten days to kind of make his pitch to Damian Lillard. But uh, to me, you don't want a guy who's not all in coming back. Yeah, look, I think it comes down to what Lillard will accept once the Blazers end up – not making a, a big enough move for Lillard here in the next 10 or 14 days. I mean, it ultimately kind of feels that like that's what it's going to come down to. Uh, moving on, Casey Martin, Oregon golf coach, joined us in hour two today to talk about Wyndham Clark. Wyndham Clark was at Oregon where Martin coached him. Casey had a lot to say about him. Punch him. Yeah, it was fairly surreal just to see at that biggest stage a player that you knew was ready for it. Um, in the sense of talent and preparation, but still, it's the U.S. Open. It's not the uh, just a, a run-of-the-mill event. And, and to see how he handled it, he, he's obviously made incredible 
jump maturation um and just to see him out there with my good buddy john ellis who's caddying for him um is it's just really satisfying and rewarding to just play whatever small role and my role was small um, um but i i got to spend a year of my life with Wyndham and, and watch and observe and and it's just really special you know i'm i'm tearing up on the last hole as that putt and when they're hugging because i know all that's gone in behind it so really cool uh, for me to be able to experience that now look uh, recruiting window open june 15th you've got casey martin out able to sell what the 2016 national title at oregon plus aaron weiss plus he's got now Wyndham clark hey you want to go win a u.s open you can do it by playing at the university of oregon ryan mallet uh here he is throwing a touchdown against uh, LSU in 2010. The former Arkansas and NFL quarterback was found dead after drowning, dead at the age of 35. Punch it. Either way, you're going to see Ryan Mount take a knee, I'm sure, here. Now, listen, I I said 100% sure there was going to be a block on that last play, too, and I I could look at this. We're going to let Ryan Mount, he's going to take a shotgun snap. We're going to put one up. Mallet in the pocket. Throws it up over the top. Right on the button. Watch out. It's a breakaway. Colby Hamilton. Ten. Five. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. Just some terrible and tragic news. Gone way too soon. Ryan Mallett uh, passed away. Died at the age of 35. Um, Arkansas Delta Plex News reported today that Mallet was transported after an incident from a beach near Destin, Florida, to a local hospital where he was pronounced dead. He was swimming. He drowned. He had previously or was working as the head football coach at Whitehall School District. Um, he is, uh, he is uh, obviously missed. Uh, you may remember he played in college as a freshman at Michigan, then transferred to Arkansas, then was picked in the third round of the 2011 draft by the New England Patriots. Played seven seasons in the NFL. Patriots, Texans, Ravens. Uh, Ryan Mallett dead at the age of 35. Last night in baseball, LSU got to dogpile. Here's how it sounded. Punch it. There it is. And for the first time since 2009, and seventh overall, the Tigers can say, we are champions. An amazing turn of events, fellas, after getting trounced 24 to 4. 24 to 4 yesterday, less than 24 hours, you know, 27 hours later, they come back, score 18 with a record-setting 24 hits of their own. And just destroy the Gators. They destroyed the Gators, came out of the loser's bracket. If you're an Oregon State fan, maybe you feel a little better about Oregon State getting knocked out in the Baton Rouge Regional by LSU because they went on to win it all. Uh, The College World Series this year broke an attendance record. 16 games averaged nearly 25,000 fans. Uh, Total 16 games totaled 393,000 fans. It was the most to ever see a College World Series in the 73-year history in Omaha. So they got about 25000 a game out at the stadium there. Great little community, great festival of baseball. I've been there a few times, and it's just it's special every time. The viewership was also off the charts. Uh, game three in particular, 3.42 million viewers took in game three. 
It was the top telecast of the day on broadcast or or ta- uh, cable uh, TV. So they, ESPN had the game. And, by the way, games two and three were not particularly competitive. Both teams won in blowout fashion, but more than 8 million people watched the weekend series on TV. And that was a big win for college baseball. That is Punch It Audio. Great stuff there. Did you watch LSU Florida last night or at all, Judah? Were you tuned into this series? Yeah, I love, uh, I think the Festival of Baseball is so well put. I, I love the College World Series, but it was hard to stick through it after they jumped out to the big league. Florida led 2 nothing early, yeah. and LSU put up a six spot in the second inning. And as someone that watched every pitch of the Oregon State LSU regional, there was a certain uh, level of inevitability with LSU, not because they were the favorites per se, but man, up and down that lineup there yeah. are just dudes. Hit it. Oh, man. No can weaknesses. You, can you imagine giving up 24 runs in a College World Series game and coming back to win the national title the next day? I mean, that's impressive resilience. Well, LSU's on a run now with women's college basketball national title, baseball national title. They've got the celebration planned in Baton Rouge. I just saw the uh, details of the celebration. So they haven't won a national championship in baseball since 2009. They're going to have a celebration at Alex Box Stadium at Skip Bertman Field that will uh, take place, um, I think, tomorrow. And they're opening it free. They're going to put fireworks on. They're going to uh, include a presentation of the trophy. Uh, Jay Johnson, the coach at LSU, members of the team will all grab the microphone, and uh, they'll have a good time. Apparently, they'll have some jello shots there as well. Uh, but LSU wins the national title, and uh, they will celebrate. I just remember um, uh, yeah. a few years ago, remember when Pat Casey was sneaking around? Not sneaking around, but like his name was floating up for that job. Yeah. Paul Maneri was stepping down, and... I know. I remember you wrote about it. You were in lockstep with what Casey was thinking, what he was going to do after stepping down at Oregon State, and got, that sent shockwaves through the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. And I just think back to that fork in the road moment. What if Casey had taken the LSU job? I mean, it, he'd be, he'd have won before now. <laughs> um, I, but here's the thing at that time, because you know, I think the Casey now would probably tell you that it was just time for him to go and. He wasn't having fun anymore, and he wasn't. Ha- he doesn't. I asked him, and he said he didn't miss the recruiting. Right? Um, you know, here's an interview that he did where he talked about NIL and college sports. A lot of confusion out there as to how this all goes. You know, the old thing is, hey, if a, a coach can leave and go somewhere, then a kid should be able to go somewhere, and, and, and that kind of deal. And and and, and there's part of that that's true, but there's also a part of this whole thing where I think that the greatest lessons um, that these kids come away with are, are some of the struggles on the journey. And if you take away those struggles and you make things easy for people and there is no uh, waiting period or there is no fight for a starting position, there is no development, you're going to, that's going to harm a lot of kids. And I think there, I think there's got to be something that allows a kid to transfer when it's right. If a coach leaves, I think anybody in that roster should be able to leave. I think that's fair game, but just to say, Hey, you know what? I'm playing, you go look at Kentucky's recruiting class in basketball. They just—they're going to have the Player of the Year in the Mid American Conference and in whatever. I mean, I just don't know if it's good for the sport. I don't know if it—I know it's not good for the individual. And I think of so many kids that um, struggled early in their career playing for me that would have transferred had they had that opportunity. 
that went through that and ended up being big league players. Yeah, he's talking really about the complexity of the game. And, uh, you know, that was on this show uh, just last spring as we talked about him hanging it up. And I remember when he held that news conference in 2018, he said he was done. He uh, he wasn't sure if he wasn't coming back. Now, I did talk to him when that LSU job opened, and, you know, he really felt like uprooting his whole family, including his son John, and moving everybody to Baton Rouge was not the best move for the Pat Casey family. If it was just Pat Casey, baseball coach, he's probably the coach at LSU now. But I don't think he wanted to leave the the community of Corvallis and I don't think he wanted to change, uh, you know, everybody in his household's lives and having him uproot. And I did speak to him at that time, and I don't think he would mind me sharing this. You know, when all that was going on, he said he didn't want to be quoted because he was really humbled by LSU considering him. He didn't want to come out and say, I don't want the job, because he privately was offered the job and he turned it down. And, but he said it wasn't the right move for his family. And, in, you know, and I don't think he wanted to his kid or anybody else to feel like they held him back and but i i think it says a lot about pat casey he was in the he's in it for more than just pat casey the baseball coach and i i appreciate that about him but he at the spring game um two years ago at oregon state spring game he came up to me on the sideline and i was talking to him and he said you let you left the paper you've gone off to do your own writing thing and I kind of said to him, you know, I just needed to go work for me for a while. Like, you know, it's, you know, not to be working for someone else. I wanted to go write about the things I want to write about. I wanted to cover the things I want to cover. And he said, well, now you understand. You and me both. And so I, I think there was a part of Pat Casey that wasn't into the recruiting NIL and doing all the things that the athletic department wanted him to do. And I think, you know, he said it like at the news conference. Listen to this bite from the news conference where he retired from Oregon State. My problem is that I what I expect out of my players on the field I expect out of myself. I just right now don't I'm not positive that I can give that same effort that I expect to them. I don't, I'm not sure I can't but I will never put the uniform on unless I do it um, with that same passion as that I expect to them. And uh, he went on to say if I could just coach that if it was just the coaching I would be coaching for a long time i think the things that wear on all coaches um are the things that happen that a lot of people never are aware of whether it's a kid that loses a parent whether it's a kid that has a academic problem whether it's a kid that has a girl problem whether it's if we could just coach you know you just walk out there you don't you don't have an office you don't have a cell phone you don't have a computer you just have a team guys would coach for a long time yep pat casey simplifying the game leave it here you got the ball face trick I think this Damian Lillard story is uh, already getting old. I would like to see him come out, maybe uh, talk explicitly about what it is that he wants. I mean, if he's not really putting the Blazers in a position where they have to trade him or, I guess, angle to figure out what the move is, um, I do think it would help him to come out and be public about it because the perception right now is kind of that he wants to be the nice guy, but he's frustrated. Because all we can go on is, you know, we haven't seen him come out and publicly support the Blazers draft picks. And he had the meeting with Joe Cronin and his agent, Aaron Goodwin. And oh, by the way, I find that interesting that that got out publicly and it came out with Chris Haynes, who is kind of embedded in Camp Lillard. So, 
I have, you know, um, the conclusion I draw there is that Aaron Goodwin and Damian Lillard were okay with the public knowing there was a meeting, but not willing to really say what the meeting was about or what it is that they want. And, and yes, I know Lillard's refrain has been, you know, I'm not here for a rebuild, but it's also been left a little murky. You know, I'm not here for a rebuild. There's going to have to be a conversation if they draft a player at number three. Well, okay, I guess there was a conversation yesterday, and we're being told not to make too much about it, but in the end I'm left going like, you know, maybe they're just painting the Blazers into a position where ultimately it'll just look like the Blazers didn't do enough. I mean, can we say that like as a right up front part of the conversation? Like let's establish the facts of the case. Damian Lillard versus the Trailblazers. What are the facts of the case, Judah? As I see it, I want to start with this. Let me know if I leave anything out. The facts of the case are that um, Lillard has been in Portland, drafted in Portland, um, enjoyed success as an all-star in Portland, um, has made and will make more money than all but two players in the NBA by the end of 2027. His career earnings will be only behind Steph Curry and Kevin Durant in, uh, in, uh, uh, as far as active players as of 2027. Lillard has come out and said in an interview with Stephen A. Smith that urgency is at an all-time high. I just feel like, you know, at this point in my career, it's, uh, and I've told them this, I'm like, man, it's, it's time to stop. You know, we tried and all of that, you know. I think our... Our urgency has to go to we have to get things done. Like this time around, we have to get things done. It's been back-to-back years missing the playoffs. Um, I feel like I had the best season of my career this season. I felt the best that I felt in a long time. I felt more in control of games than I ever have. Just from being able to dominate the games, right. you know, it was, it was much more easy and simple for me this season. Um, so I just, you know, they know how important it is to right. just, you know, be on a competitive team on a on the level where we can, you know, make a run in the playoffs. And uh, you know, that just that just has to happen. Has to happen. How soon? <laughs> that's my that's my can't question cuz as many have pointed out, the Blazers are not that close. Um Lillard also said he's got a lot of optimism. Um he also said uh He's kind of uh, with everybody's, ch- you know, everybody's chasing a ring. Well, what about the ring culture in the league? Here's Lillard talking to uh, uh, on on the Dan Patrick show. Well, everybody's chasing a ring. That's what we play for. You know what I mean? But it's like when guys leave a team to go to another team, it's like, oh, he's just chasing rings. And I think how it ends up looking that way is because you move on, you move into a situation, and that situation just might not work out. So when it's not working out, you know, maybe the team is having respect for these guys because of, you know, what they've accomplished and who they are. So they're saying, you know, okay, this ain't working out here. What do you want to, you know, let's work together. And they're going to try to find the next best situation that suits them and where they could possibly win. So now it's this guy's chasing rings. So, you know, I think you damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, when things change. Uh, whether that's in my control or not in my control, then, you know, I'll move from there. But right now, um, you know, people are like, man, it's time to do this. It's time to do that. But everybody that's, that has something to say, they would never have to wake up and be Dame Lillard. You know, they just, just 
they'll never have to walk walk the walk for me. I'll always be the person that has to deal with whatever the pros and cons of my decisions are. So I can't, you know, I can't do things based on what what other people think or whatever the criticism or whatever the chatter is. I gotta I gotta continue to do me, you know. That was back in March, as Damian Lillard is talking about that. It sounds like a um, a very different Damian Lillard than the Damian Lillard that was talking about these kinds of things even two and three years ago. He, you know, I do think that there is a there is a uh, urgency to him at the age he'll be thirty three here coming up in a couple weeks. There's an urgency to him. And in his in his mind and in his game that, you know, he kind of, you know, if, if it's not Portland, it's got to be somewhere else. This is not going away. The bald faced truth is not here for a long time. Just a good time.